Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 16, Bex vs. Rebirth of Mothra. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the cocoon-building curator of the vault, Nathan Marchand, and with me today, somehow, <laughs> we'll get into that. Somehow. We'll get into that a little bit. <laughs> Despite the fact that we are still in lockdown here on the island, thanks to the coronavirus, joining me today is none other than someone you've heard multiple times already on the show, just not in person, Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Hello, everybody. Hello. It's so good to be here. And I will definitely tell you how I got to this island because it's quite amazing. That Jimmy, I tell you what, that Jimmy... He's got some pretty amazing connections. So not only did he get me out of quarantine, but he also sent the Vulture Exo Armor. I don't know how he convinced the Billa Saludo to give him one, but it came fully equipped with the Hotua's healing powder, plus instructions to apply liberally. And that way I don't have to worry about any sort of nanometal completely taking over my body and mind. And it also got me out of the coronavirus quarantine. So bonus! Yeah, that was a ride. And I bet you I got to the island in record time. Wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know you had that, Jimmy. How in blazes did you get your mitts on one of those? A trade secret? Really, how many of these do you have? I thought you said during Kaiju Quarantine that time travel should be illegal. Seriously, man? Oh, time travel is illegal, but dimension hopping, on the other hand, oh, okay. I think you might be splitting hairs there a little bit. I know enough about string theory to be dangerous. I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, man? We cool? All right, moving on. What, you have something else to say, Jimmy? Jimmy, what did I tell you about flirting with the guests, especially when she's a happily married woman? My gosh, dude. I am so sorry, Bex. I guess I kind of had to expect it because Jimmy is a good-looking guy, so he's got his ways. Yeah, I just don't feel like incurring the wrath of your husband, especially when you have (laughs) Vulture Exo armor, because I'm sure he'd figure out how to use it. Uh, Yeah, that is true. He's a wonder. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I will assure you, he spoke in ignorance. He has said on the air before he does not chase after married women, so I'll chastise him later. But anyway, (laughs) unwanted flirtation aside, (laughs) you are joining me today for actually the first of three episodes because we're going to be looking at a film trilogy. It's my little way of repaying you for having me on your show, Redeemed Otaku, for a trilogy because you had me on for the Godzilla anime trilogy. So we got to talk about each one right after they dropped on Netflix. So as I mentioned in episode three, if anyone wants to hear an actual review of those films from me right after the fact for each one, listen to Bex's episodes. I will include links to them in the show notes so you can go hear them because they are fantastic episodes, I have to say, especially the third one. I still think the third one is the best podcast episode I have ever heard on the anime trilogy, particularly the third film. 
I can't those say that great. enough. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah. I, I love doing it with you, and I enjoyed those anime movies, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they are a film trilogy, great. a weird yeah. film trilogy, but they are a film trilogy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But regardless, I'm having you on to talk about Rebirth of Mothra, which well, you, you have not, I'm... which you have not seen. So nope. this shall be interesting, yeah. <laughs> to say yeah. the least. But I think, given that you are the redeemed otaku, I think you'll get a big kick out of these movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we're going to do it one <laughs> at a time, because it's a lot to tackle. <laughs> All right. Future Nate injecting himself here, because I forgot to mention that today's toku topic will be deforestation in Japan. And now, back to the show. In the meantime, as per my contractual obligations, I have to read Jimmy's entertaining info dump, and then through the magic of editing, you and I, while that is playing, will slip off to my screening room and watch Rebirth of Mothra. Let's do it. Mothra is a divine and motherly insect kaiju dedicated to protecting the Elias, her doll-sized priestesses, and defending Earth from other monsters. The ancient goddess ensures that her legacy will live on by summoning a huge egg, from which hatches Mothra Leo. This heroic and steadfast offspring tries to help his mother fight Descadora as a larva, and after emerging from his cocoon, he takes on his mother's role as divine guardian and fights Descadora to avenge her. Descadora is a malicious and evil three-headed space dragon sealed away by the Elias' people millions of years ago. He is freed from his tomb when the seal of the Elias is removed and he is awakened by Belvira. His only motivation is to destroy. Fairy Mothra, or just Fairy, is the faithful and kind steed ridden by the Elias, who flies them where the sisters need to go. Garu Garu is a loyal and mean robot dragon who serves as Belvira's steed. The Elias sisters Maul, a.k.a. Mona, and Laura are Mothra's wise and loving, respectively, priestesses determined to keep their nefarious sister from freeing Descadora and wreaking havoc on the world. Their sister, the belligerent and brash Belvira, seeks to unleash Descadora because she despises humanity for the damage they've caused to nature. Taiki Goto is a clever and brave boy trying to return the seal of Elias to Hokkaido to seal away Descadora after his father brings it back. His sister, the mischievous and kind Wakaba, joins him in his quest after being freed from Belvira's control. Their father, Yuichi, is a distant but caring workaholic who takes the seal of Elias not knowing what it is to give to his daughter as a gift. He later feels guilty for his actions. His wife, the long-suffering but argumentative Makiko, helps her children in their quest by arranging transportation to Hokkaido and later, with the help of Yuichi, saves them during the Mothra's battle with Descadora. The Elias sisters' story is unified with the kaiju plotline, but the family drama runs parallel to it even as the Mothras dominate most of the film. The family's disharmony reflects humanity's disharmony with nature as well as Maul and Laura's conflict with Belvira. It is contrasted with Mothra and Mothra Leo, who have a good relationship. While Belvira is the villain, Descadora is the problem. Belvira has a dogfight with her sisters while they ride Garo Garo and Fairy, respectively, in the Goto household to find the seal, and she escapes with it. Belvira mind controls Yuichi to drive a bulldozer filled with explosives toward a mountain to free Descadora, who she awakens with the seal. The Elias recover the seal and summon Mothra by singing. She and later the larval Mothra Leo fight Descadora, but it ends with Mothra dead and Mothra Leo injured. The problem is solved after Mothra Leo cocoons himself in a 10,000-year-old tree on Yakushima. 
He emerges and battles the three-headed dragon, and the Elias are able to seal the evil monster away again. The script by Masumi Suatani is a simple family drama with a small ensemble cast and minor subplots. The special effects were supervised by Koichi Kawakita, who famously worked on most of the Heisei Godzilla films. All of his trademarks are present, glitter, beam battles, and monster puppets, among other things. Other techniques used included animation, green screen, and matting. It looks much like a 90s Toho Tokusatsu film, which is to say it's reminiscent of American fantasy films from the 80s. While the kaiju action is familiar, the dogfight scene, while awkwardly implemented, stands up from Toho's recent Godzilla films. Deskadora, who is portrayed by future Godzilla GMK actor Mizuho Yoshida, is an impressive kaiju. This is the first Ghidorah variation that was a quadruped. His heads have exceptional coordination thanks to talented puppeteers. This is a lighthearted family fantasy film with a moderate amount of gravitas. For the most part, this is an experimental film. It reuses many elements from Mothra's past film appearances, such as the twins, environmentalism, and pop music. While it reinforces many style elements from other films featuring Mothra, it establishes style by having children as protagonists and a new male Mothra, both of which had never been done before. Indeed, not since the Showa Gamera series had children been the stars of a kaiju film. It was also the first time the fairies were given separate personalities, creating a new dynamic for the characters. Toho had intended to make a spin-off film for the ever-popular Mothra since 1990 with Godzilla and Mothra The Battle for Earth being the highest-grossing entry in the Heisei Godzilla series, it was inevitable she would get a new film of her own, especially after the Heisei series ended. That being said, this film was made to entertain a child audience. Budget figures are hard to come by for this film, but a good estimate would be about 850 million yen, around $8 million, and it grossed 1.15 billion yen, about $10 million, when it was released December 14, 1996. This was almost half the gross of 1992's Godzilla and Mothra The Battle for Earth. It made more money from toy and video sales. It has a 5.9 on IMDb with 1,089 ratings. While its reception is somewhat mixed for kaiju fans, it is loved by children. The film was given new English-language opening and closing credits when released stateside on DVD by TriStar Pictures in 2000, making it one minute shorter. There are multiple forces at play. Workaholism conflicts with family, which was a common issue in 1990s Japan, with Yuichi spending long hours at a faraway job. Industry clashes with nature when the logging company Yuichi works for cuts down forests and removes the seal of Elias. Science and spirituality are seen in conflict when the adults refuse to believe the children at first when they tell them about the Elias. Belvera's hatred of mankind and the Elias' kindness toward them are at odds with each other. Belvera's mind control magic allows her to manipulate both Wakaba and Yuichi, turning them against the family for a time. Taiki and Wakaba have frequent flare-ups of sibling rivalry, even while helping the Elias. There are a handful of obvious themes, the chief of which is environmentalism. Humanity is shown to be in disharmony with nature, and only by restoring that harmony can they find peace. This is seen in microcosm with the family. Descadora embodies unchecked logging, among other man-made environmental destruction. Forgiveness is exemplified by the Elias toward Belvira, whose unyielding hate makes her a troublemaker. Taiki and Wakaba, despite some bickering, learn to put their differences aside to help the Elias. Mothra and Mothra Leo are courageous and self-sacrificial in their dedication to each other and defending the Earth. My contractual obligations have been fulfilled! To the Toku Talk! Okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way. 
So now we can dive into this. This is actually Woo-hoo! going. To, <laughs> this is actually going to be the first of a series of episodes where, since unfortunately I cannot continue the Kong quest, since Godzilla vs Kong is still not out, we have. I guess you could say some filler episodes to tide us over until November, which hopefully I'm, is when the film will be released. Where we'll I'm be, filler? Yeah. I'm a filler episode? Yes, you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't skip filler, guys. There is important information and character building in filler, okay? <laughs> Unless it's Bleach. But anyway. <laughs> or Naruto. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, we'll be looking at the Mothra trilogy and just to let everybody know a little bit going forward, we'll be looking at some other things, you know, some other important kaiju films in the in the genre to tide us over for the rest of the year until Godzilla vs. Kong is out. Now, let's dive in with this. So, Bex, fresh out of my screening room, what are your first impressions of Rebirth of Mothra? Well... I enjoyed it. Overall, I think it is a fun movie. If, there's a caveat, if you're a fan of Japanese media and or kaiju films, which I'm a fan of Japanese media. I love anime. So I kind of have those rose tinted glasses, you know, so there you go. And I watched it a couple times, you know, to get through it. I do have a funny story to tell, but I think I'll wait till the uh, right moment. Oh, spring around me. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing? Sneaking off after we finished watching it? You're like, I have to see it again. <laughs> I got to go watch it again. <laughs> we're pulling it up on your phone. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, through the magic of editing and all. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's that's what happens when you and I go watch the movie and Jimmy decides to go spend half the day in his garage. Yep. Yep. Still rebuilding Mechanicong there, buddy. Yeah, I know. You just bought a power loader to help with moving parts around. I get it. They're giant robots. Sometimes he scares me. I wonder if he's a mad scientist waiting to happen. Probably. Yeah, possibly. You but never anyway, can't tell guys like that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the the thing about this movie is, I actually saw the, this whole trilogy actually a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. A very long time ago, and only rewatched them recently for the podcast. So it was almost like watching them for the first time again because it had been really long. I remembered a few things, but there were some other things about it that I had forgotten about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this trilogy exists in an odd spot in the, the history of tokusatsu. The first one that we're talking about today was released in 1996, so it was the year after Toho had ended the Godzilla series again okay. you know, in 1995. Mothra had appeared in one of those movies in 1992. It was called Godzilla vs. Mothra, but it's known in the United States as Godzilla Mothra, the Battle for Earth. Okay. So just to let you know, the puppet that they use for Mothra in this was recycled from that earlier film. Okay. This is also noteworthy because this was the last movie produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, who was one of the big producers at Toho, had been for many, many decades. Going back at least, I think, as far back as the 50s. Jimmy may correct me in his notes, but I know he at (laughs) least went all the way back to the 50s. It may have been the 40s as well. I'm not sure. And he's commonly credited with being the creator of Godzilla. So... Pretty much every Hmm. major film, particularly the tokusatsu films that Toho had produced, he was a producer on it. And this was the last one he did because he died April 2nd, 1997, only a few months after this film was released. 
And what's interesting was because they reused the same prop for Mothra, they originally did plan on having this be in-universe with those Godzilla films. Okay. Which would have been interesting because at that point, Mothra was supposed to be flying out into space to destroy a meteor that was going to hit Earth in 1999 or something. It's a little bit odd. (laughs) Okay. So we're not sure what's going on with this continuity here? Well, no, we know. It's in its own universe. This is okay. it, this is in its own universe. This they just originally thought it would be in universe with those Godzilla movies, but then they okay. then they decided to make it its own thing, and I think it works better <laughs> as okay. it's, as a standalone in its own universe. Gotcha. Or, okay. You know, personally, I so that's kind of the backdrop that you know we have here. The okay. special effects guy is uh, Koichi Kawakita, who did most of the Godzilla films up to that point. And I can tell you right now that one of his trademarks as the special effects director is all over this movie, glitter. (laughs) Glitter, yeah. A lot of glitter. Lots (laughs) of glitter. (laughs) I mean, probably to the point where they were breathing it in and probably had glitter lining their lungs. Yeah, they they were wearing masks to protect against glitter and not coronavirus. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the glitter might have been more problematic than coronavirus yeah. at that point. You inhale enough yeah. you inhale enough of the glitter, it's not gonna oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It's not gonna go over. But they probably still would have been counted as a coronavirus death though. <laughs> <laughs> Conspiracy theories <laughs> here on <laughs> on Monster Island Film Fall. But even though this was, in a lot of ways, was a radical departure, I made sure to tell you, actually, before you came to the island, Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to be on, and I said, I do recommend you watch the original Mothra film, just to kind of have a little bit of a context for what was going on. And as a more, oh, maybe not context so much as a point of comparison, because this was the first time Mothra had appeared in a solo movie since that film from 1961. So she was getting out from under Godzilla's shadow at that Mm. point. One of the intentions of making this film was to appeal to a different demographic, which was the same thing that Toho was trying to do in 1961 with the original Mothra. Back then it was, let's make a giant monster movie for a female audience. This one, I think it's more for kids and maybe the family audience. Yeah. 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 I definitely agree with that. Yep. And I did watch the original Mothra per your recommendation going to say it it's a it's a fantastic movie if you want to hear me do a deep dive into it listen to the kaiju vision radio episode that i did with brian Scherchel on that very film it's fantastic but in a lot of ways this movie is a bit of a radical departure from especially that, that original movie though a lot of the stuff that's done in this was also done in the aforementioned godzilla film that she was in but probably one of the most interesting things that we have in this is we do have mothra's trademark fairies But what's noteworthy about them in this movie is they actually have separate personalities in this. When before, they were twins and they talked in unison. And they sang in unison as well. Mm -hmm. In this one, they are, as I said, they are allowed to be individual characters and they have individual names. And then they build upon that even more by introducing a third sister. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Laura and Mona, or the Elias, the fairies in this. And then there's their evil sister, Belvira. Which she was great. I wanted to see a lot more of her. Oh, you will. Than anything. You will. She she comes back for both of the sequels. 
She definitely had, I think, the most character. I was like, I want more Belvira. <laughs> <laughs> she, I, I feel like this actress was channeling her inner Rita Repulsa at points. Absolutely. <laughs> She's not Absolutely. quite as over the top as Rita Repulsa, <laughs> but <laughs> she's giving off a similar vibe. <laughs> she, yeah. she likes to laugh evilly, though not quite as much as Rita Repulsa does. And her wardrobe choices, definitely very Rita Repulsa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And I started to pay attention to this was they mentioned that Belvira is their older sister at one point. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, it doesn't seem like the fairies in this are actually twins. It's two different. They're, the actresses are not twins. And you know, yeah. like I said, they're not talking in unison. Although they do have a few points where they shout things at the same time. Right. <laughs> like they yell Mothra at the same time. <laughs> you know, at a few points. And they do sing in unison. Yeah. But I don't think they're meant to be twins in this. So my theory is that Mona is the older of the two of them and Laura is the younger because given their personalities, Mona is more assertive and she's more likely to take charge. She, you she's know, kind she, of the one that's like directing everything. Yeah, she's like directing what everything. Do, what they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Laura seems to be the more sensitive and cautious of the two of them. And mm -hmm. the first thing that goes off in my head is like, yeah, I bet Mona's the older of the two of them because as a firstborn myself, I can vouch for mm -hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> their outfits were pretty cool. I kind of thought that would be fun to cosplay as them sometime oh. with somebody else, you know? <laughs> or you can just, you can cosplay both of them, just switch outfits. Yeah, know, there you go. At the con, there you know, go. one day you're Mona and the next day you're Laura. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I bet you could rock but I, it. But I couldn't do the cool poses that they did. Like, they're almost <laughs> like magical girls. Yes. <laughs> that was actually <laughs> one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on for this episode. Yeah. Because <laughs> one of your favorite animes is Sailor Moon. That you have is. a thing for magical girl animes. I'm yes. like, the Elias are magical girls. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Now, here's the question. Can you sing? <laughs> I can hold a tune. I can hold a tune. Next I'm not going to demonstrate it here. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Do you have an evil sister? Yeah. Uh, no, no, that I don't. No. So, so would you go, would you cosplay Belvira too? Or she would be fun for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Work on my evil laugh there. <laughs> you always okay. have to raise your hand up, you know, to your yeah. mouth. Now you're just making me think of a character in Street Fighter named Kareen. That's what she does. Oh. <laughs> she laughs at people after she wins. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, here's a question. Which uh -huh. of the which of their steeds would you rather have? Would you rather have fairy or would you rather have a what? Uh, uh, a Gagara? I want to let me I'm going to double check my note. Garu. Garu. <laughs> he has a crazy name. <laughs> Jimmy may yell at me later in his blog for that, but <laughs> yeah, would you? Who would you rather have? Oh man, they were both kind of cool in their own right. I like the little dragon. I've always liked the little, you know, I've always liked dragons. So I'd probably have to choose him, even though he was kind of goofy. <laughs> That's kind of this whole movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there was the weird mini Shyamalan twist at the end where we find out that Garu Garu yeah. is a robot, which I, I like, had forgotten what? about. I just rewatched this movie a few months ago just for fun. And I had forgotten about that part when we watched yeah. it today. I'm like, wait, he's a robot? Yeah. When was he a robot? But he had a lot of personality for a robot. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
It's Aww. it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, fairy. I don't know if it was a reused prop or something, but there was a fairy Mothra in the infamous Godzilla versus Space Godzilla, and now mm-hmm. we have a little moth that's just called Fairy. And mm-hmm. the Mothra twins in Godzilla versus Space Godzilla rode the fairy Mothra. So I guess so someone decided, yeah, I guess someone decided, let's make that its own thing. There you go. Yeah, that prop seriously looks like the plushie that they're going to sell at the mall <laughs> for this movie. <laughs> it's like so, they made the plushie and someone's like, hey, how about we just use the plushie for the prop? <laughs> I mean, if I saw that plushie for sale, I'd buy it. I'm just saying. I'm like, oh, it's scary. I'd buy it. Yeah, I know you would. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, really? It looks like the plushie that the kids are going to want when they go to the mall after the movie. Which that was yeah. one of my favorite scenes when they were on the airplane and <laughs> the two, the twins are, I, I, I call them twins on my notes, but they're, uh, you know, dressed up and they got their little pose, their arms all straight like they're dolls. You're looking like the J-pop dolls. That's what it looks yes. like, the J-pop doll. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, th- I'm sure that might be a thing. I could be wrong. But yeah, I'm sure that was they, great. I'm sure they yeah. make pop idol dolls in in Japan. But the crazy, like the their outfits, their the, outfits, yeah. Oh my gosh! Yep. I wonder if anyone's ever cosplayed their doll outfits just from that one scene, just to see know. if anyone would remember. I I love obscure stuff, so that would be cool to do for sure. <laughs> there you go. You know, you can you'll have so four cosplays. You'll have maybe even five if you want to be Belvira. You'll yep. have five cosplays to pick from. <laughs> Yep. See uh, how many people will actually recognize it. That would, that would be hilarious. But that, that scene, <laughs> you know, they're smuggling. We're kind of jumping all over the place, but that's what we I do know, here we on are. Monster Island Film Vault. We go where the conversation <laughs> leads. But you got the kids and the the mom, and they're smuggling the girls because Fairy got hurt in that overlong oh. chase sequence. Oh, it was. It was. I thought I long. actually thought the first time I saw the movie, I thought the poor thing died, but because it, uh, it looked like it shriveled up. I was like, "Oh no." It, it shriveled died. and like turned all brown. And it yeah. turned brown, but it didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> it did not die. It was only no. mostly dead. <laughs> yeah. But so they have the little moth and then they have the girls who are like, okay, we have to smuggle them because we have to go to Hokkaido because that's where everything's uh-huh. happening, uh, especially with their dad. You know, we'll get into that a little bit because that's one of the big things in this movie is the, the family dynamics. Yeah. So the doll disguises are so they could literally pass them off as dolls. Uh-huh. I'm sure that uh-huh. something, somebody somewhere just thought all the times we've had these girls in these movies, they're the size of dolls. Why don't we actually uh-huh. make them pretend to be dolls? <laughs> uh, heck, they've used dolls as props for them. <laughs> Oh, they did. So why in past movies? So they're like, why not? (laughs) So, (laughs) so they actually make them dolls. I can't believe. I mean, I will admit the scene. The scene is silly because you know the flight attendant is like, "Oh, look, you have such wonderful dolls. They're really cute. Oh, look, it's the moth and what the little toy moth and what's the moth's name?" And like, and they're like, "Uh, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know." And she goes with it. I'm like, really. You couldn't okay. come up with some silly sounding name or Well they heard something? they heard them call her fairy, so I yeah. don't I don't know why that was a weird scene to me. Like why didn't they know the name of the fairy? <laughs> yeah. 
but in the long run, it's an amusing scene because that's, yeah, that is the kind of movie that this is. Uh, when I was messaging you before you found your vulture armor and came here, I was telling you that one of my selling points to you for this movie was that it was like an 80s family fantasy film, but made 10 years too late. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it feels like those sorts of things you would have been seeing in the 80s. The, yeah. With the family getting caught up in some crazy supernatural thing and getting involved with forces beyond their understanding and yeah. you know, and all of that and learning a nice little lesson along the way or you know, right. at the very least <laughs> learning how to be a better family and things yeah. like that. I will admit that at this point, the overworked dad trope was kind of tired by this point in the 90s because it was all over the place. Mm. It's not a knock against the movie. I get it because especially since the, you know, given the research that I did on this, this was a very common problem, especially in Japan in the 90s. So it makes sense. But it's one of those things where both of us are, I guess you could say children of the 90s because that's when our adolescents were. That was a very common thing on the other side of the Pacific in Hollywood movies at the time. Yeah. And it's funny, though, speaking of the family dynamic and everything, I have a friend in Japan. I keep in communication with him. But one of the things that he finds difficult is, thankfully, he gets to work from home because he's a tech guy. But when it comes to the work ethic of the Japanese people, it's hard to have a social life as far as the church is concerned. Because mm. in the state, you are going to services, then you have like maybe small group, and then maybe a prayer meeting, and then maybe one other gathering with some friends or something going on with the church. Well, in Japan, when it comes to Christian church or Protestant church, they really can't do a lot of that because of the overworked dad who's all, you know, he has to maintain the status quo of working all these long hours and can't be there for his family, much less be there for church gatherings. So it's just an interesting uh, cultural aspect that the Japanese people have to deal with. Yeah, I've heard all about that from Reverend Mafune, the island's chaplain. I need to introduce you to him after we're done broadcasting today. I think you two would get along quite well. Absolutely. Let's keep talking about the the characters that we have in this movie. So we got the overworked dad, and Uh we got the mom who's doing her best. (laughs) She is trying very hard to make the best of the situation, as any good mother would. But then we have our main characters. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the kaiju fan community, but have you ever heard the term Kenny? No. Okay. Kenny is something that came about because of another popular resident here on Monster Island, Gamera. Okay. When Gamera's movies started showing up on VHS back on the 80s, they got dubbed again Mm -hmm. by the infamous Sandy Frank, who I've heard referred to as a cinematic terrorist. (laughs) Oh, Because the dubs were infamously silly. The Gamera films were known for having children as characters in them. In the very original Gamera film, there was a Japanese boy in the movie. They changed his name to Kenny in the dub. Okay. The other thing that is noteworthy about kids in Gamera movies is they are obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) And so after that, and also thanks to MST3K popularizing these dubs, now annoying kid characters in kaiju films get called Kennys. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's like, um, have you seen Kung Pao? Legend of the Unfortunately. Oh. Oh. 
oh, one of the oh. things is he's walking through. I can't remember how far into the movie it is, but he's walking in town or whatever, and the kids run by, and the way they dub it is, "We're children, we're children." <laughs> And that's all they say is they run by. We're children. We're children. <laughs> that movie. And it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. That movie. <laughs> okay, Jimmy. I won't bring that movie up ever again. <laughs> but it was seriously almost as traumatic as the war for you? Dang, man. <laughs> oh. Almost as traumatic as the war in space. Okay. Note to self. Yikes. Never bring up Kung Pao ever again. <laughs> Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, moving on. So we have our two token kid characters, Taiki and his sister, Wakaba. They have a serious sibling rivalry thing going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I kind of didn't <laughs> like Wakaba at first because right? she takes advantage of the fact that she's the little sister. Oh, she yeah. She cries some crocodile tears in this movie at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yes, Jimmy, I know you have experience with crying. We're moving on. So, what did you think of that? I mean, I don't know if you have siblings or how many you have or anything like that, but... Oh, I have siblings. Yes, I have many, many siblings. I am the third child out of six. Ooh, boy. Uh, so, yeah, and I was the classic middle child where I watched everything from the sidelines. But yeah, no, I have experience from watching my siblings, I should say, because I was the good one. Oh, really? So you you weren't the Wakaba one. in your family? No, I was not the Wakaba. No, I was the one that was nobody talked about. Because oh. <laughs> I'm off in the shadows. <laughs> watching your anime. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a Ben's little sister, Bridget's little sister, Bobby's older sister. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But no, I have experience in watching my siblings act out. I should not act out, but uh, use and play my parents. This is the classic older brother, little sister trope for sure. Oh, yeah. And I got to say, my sympathies were definitely with poor Taiki. I'm like, yeah. I know. Yeah, your sister's a jerk. Yeah. I know. T definitely taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. Yep. Not cool. <laughs> Which And on top of that, she gets mind controlled and he gets I know. thrown around. <laughs> I know. That's where it kind of turns. That's when you start to get more of a sense of what the movie is trying to do. I do think one of the unfortunate things about this movie is it has a great setup, but I don't think uh -huh. they gave the characters enough time at the beginning for us to get to know them a little bit before they get thrust into all the madness. Sure. <laughs> I would have liked a little bit more time with them, just them doing their daily routine sort of a thing and establishing them outside of the craziness sure. beforehand. I would have liked a little bit more of that because the journey they try to take, I felt like my personal opinion, you can disagree with me if you want, but I felt like the journey that they end up going on needed a little bit more time to breathe at the beginning because the whole idea is like with, Taiki and Wakaba is their typical siblings. They don't like each other. They kind of say they hate each other, but then throughout what happens over the course of this movie, they figure out, actually, we don't. Yeah. We actually do really care about each other because now we're yeah. in life and death situations. And especially Taiki, you know, he was the first one to really figure that out because his sister starts acting weird. You can tell this is a kid's movie because <laughs> what's the first thing that evil mind-controlled Wakaba does? She sits on the couch and eats a bunch of junk food. 
I know. Apparently, that is the most evil thing that she can do. Stuffing her face with all the snacks around her. And somehow there's a can of beer on the coffee table. (laughs) Okay, so maybe. Did she get into that next? There's like, did she get into that? Okay, I didn't notice that actually. Good catch there. They're like, wait, what? Uh, Did she get into into dad's beer? Uh, Otherwise, it's just like, okay. So she's guilty of gluttony. That's one of the Uh, seven. Right. So what yep. other ones has she done? Although I also want to know how the heck did Taiki, when he first meets his mind controlled sister and she's just being quiet and he's like, why are you being weird? How did he not see Belvira hovering over in the corner? It's not like she turned herself invisible or anything. It's like, dude, how did you I not know. see that? <laughs> I think it's a guy problem actually. Oh really? Uh, yeah, just... guys just don't see those things. I don't know. <laughs> guys are oblivious to you are oblivious. to uh, 12-inch dragon riding witch ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That and the ketchup bottle that's right in front of you in the, in the refrigerator. It sounds like you speak from experience. <laughs> what? What? Uh, are we hey. talking about Tim? Maybe a little. Maybe a little. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> but anyway. Then he figures out, my sister's being crazy. What the heck is going on? Because then Belvira just makes no secret of what she's doing. She just shows up and says, hi, I'm controlling your sister. And that dog. I'm controlling that dog, too. Sick him. And sends the dog after him. And Okay. I, I know I'm going to sound like I'm really ragging on this movie, and I don't mean uh-huh. to, but that dog did not look the least bit vicious. <laughs> the kid's running like, from it, and it that little actor is doing dog. his best to sell it, and they put in some nice dog growling sound effects, but that dog does not look like it intends to murder that child. He looks like he I wants mean, to it was play. All but wag- it was all but wagging its tail. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> Nice try, but uh-huh. it's not working. Although it also yeah. begs the question of Belvira can mind control dogs and can mind control little sisters. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she mind controlling everyone else? <laughs> yeah, she only uses that three times because she uses it on the dad too. Yeah. And then that was it. That yeah, was it. I was just like, why aren't you mind controlling everybody? Why aren't you mind mm-hmm. controlling the brother? Yeah. No, make him you know, have your little army of children. Right. <laughs> no one will will come after you because you have an army of children. Yeah, and it was like later on in the film, it wasn't even, you know, it's like you forget about it because yeah. she doesn't do it anymore. She doesn't so. do it anymore. I mean, come on. <laughs> Power Rangers the movie played around with that more wow. than this did. <laughs> yes, I just talked about Power Rangers the movie in connection to Mothra. All right. <laughs> Uh, but kind of a weak setup aside, the journey that they go on is all about working out their differences because the mom and dad are not on the verge of divorce or anything, but they're, they're not definitely not along. nice to each other. Yeah, they're very like he, rude to each other. Yeah, when he uh, puts the little medallion around his daughter's neck and he's like, you're more lovable than your mom. Like, oh, how mean is that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he's also drinking a beer in he's her bedroom. He's also drinking a beer. In her bedroom, yeah. and mom comes in and is like, what are you doing? Don't drink uh-huh. in the kid's room. Yep. So we establish very quickly they're not getting on. But then what ends up happening is they get thrust into an insane situation, this crazy adventure, and they have to come to terms with how they feel about each other, especially mm-hmm. Taiki and Wakaba. They mm-hmm. really have to work things out over the course of their little adventure. 
And I do think it works, especially as we'll talk about a bit in the next segment. Their story works in tandem with the environmental message, (laughs) messaging in this movie, which has always been a thing with Mothra. But, and I, like I said, I think in terms of the human storyline, I do think that it works. It's a common trope, a common story type, but it works. Yeah. And I actually appreciated the parents being involved because in a lot of kid movies, usually the parents are a barrier between the kids and their adventures. Like we can't tell mom and dad or, you know, mom locked me in my bedroom and now I can't go on this adventure with you guys. You know, so I liked that the parents were involved with the children's adventure. So I really like that. It's not a Gamera movie where the kids are smarter than the adults. Mm -hmm. They are still reacting like kids. Yeah. And still need help from the adults. Even though I yep. do think the movie's about them and they're more of a driving force and they do more, but the adults are treated with more respect. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Just as a side note, I love when the dad sees the twins on ferry for the first time and they're like, oh, the children are over there on the ridge. Just follow this valley. You can find them. And they fly off and he's just kind of staring at them. <laughs> he's like, did you see that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that was a cute little, little yeah, character moment. They actually react like people would. Although yeah, I will exactly. admit, the, I can believe the kids would acclimate to meeting dragon riding fairies pretty quickly. But <laughs> mom, mom took to it pretty fast, I got to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, she did a lot of screaming at first. So yes. I, I think that was appropriate. And then she even mentioned, you know, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it for myself. <laughs> Most definitely. We've already kind of hinted at it a little bit. Let's talk about the special effects and the monsters in this, because that's the big draw. Sure. I'm just going to put it out there right now. Weirdly enough, I think the monsters had more pathos and emotion in their story than the, uh, than the, than the family in this. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll get into to, that. I've, we'll get into yeah. that. I've already mentioned yeah. some of the things about the props, and we've talked a bit about fairy and uh, Gar- I can't say the dang thing's name right. What did you say? Was Garu 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 Garu? See, you've probably watched more anime than I have, so you you can handle the Japanese <laughs> a little bit better than me. But Garu Garu, we see both of them with the fairies very early and very often in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I gotta admit, sometimes the effects work, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> That big set piece that they have at the beginning, well, big in, in the ironic sense, because, which is, I will give them, this is very different from most of the other kaiju films that Toho had produced. Our first big set piece is Belvira with Garu Garu and Fairy and the Elias flying around in the family's house, destroying yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. Because both For Fairy and Garu Garu went to the Stormtrooper School of Marksmanship. Yeah. Also, I find it funny. I find it funny that apparently a tennis shoe, a child's tennis shoe, can block Garu Garu's death ray, (laughs) and then later on blows up a truck. I'm just saying. There was definitely some inconsistencies there. Uh, There's some uh... power level inconsistencies there, (laughs) but um, this was a thing. And then you know that sort of uh, beam battle thing continues once mm-hmm. we get to the actual kaiju and I can tell you that was a thing with the Heisei era of Toho's kaiju films. They loved beam battles. Okay. Make it look flashy and make it look pretty. 
I was a little surprised at the amount of lasers and lightning in this movie. I was lasers, not expecting that. Lasers and lightning. That sounds like a great yeah. title for something. <laughs> Maybe yeah. It could be an anime. Lasers and there lightning. <laughs> the title of your episode. <laughs> lasers of an, of an and episode. lightning. Yeah. <laughs> so we have the first big set piece is this chase sequence, and I do think it goes on a little too long. Mm-hmm. It goes on a little too Also, crazy things happen. Like, yeah. The, was it the, I can't remember now, was it Belvira or the the sisters that f- just flew through the window super casually, like it was nothing? No, it was the sisters. It yeah, was the sisters, it was like, the they just sh- yeah. fly right through the window, like, wow, okay, that was yeah. super casual, no worries whatsoever. I have run through a glass window, and let me tell you, Ooh. it was a very unpleasant experience. Um, they're just, yeah. they just go through... Like, what the heck is fairy made out of? Wow. <laughs> I mean, it looks like stuffing, but <laughs> oh, what is she made of? And then they're flying around. They destroy their kitchen and their table and their living room. And it's just, oh, oh my everything. gosh. They destroy everything. everything. And it was, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that was wacky enough. Supposedly, there was a photograph of Ishiro Honda in that. Oh, scene, really? But I, yes, according to Wikipedia, oh. I was like, I was, I couldn't find it, but I didn't watch the scene that many times. I would believe <laughs> it, though. I would believe it. This actually had a brand new director who hadn't directed okay. any of the Godzilla films before this. His name, unfortunately, escapes me. Yell at me later, Jimmy. I saw you going for that button. Not today. Not today, Jimmy. Not today. <laughs> Actually, I also just realized it was not a truck. It was a bulldozer. So it was a little mixed up. I just saw oh, that yeah. in my notes. Well, the bulldozer had dynamite on there. So yeah, it did okay. have some help. And some other special effects to go along with this is, especially Belvira. She's very fond of wire foo. Because <laughs> 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 she's flipping around and doing things all the time. And it looks uh-huh. like it desperately wants to be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Although this was a little before Crouching Tiger. But every time I see it now, I think of Crouching Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know what other thing I was thinking of when I watched the, especially the chase, well, actually the whole movie, but especially the chase sequence. Did you ever play Panzer Dragoon? Uh, no, I have not. Oh, okay. That actually, it was a video game back in the late 90s. And it actually just got remade. And yeah, my brother again. played I remember watching my brother play yeah, it. Yeah, I played play it a little bit uh, back in mm-hmm. the day. You get to ride a dragon and get into nice. dogfights with it. So I was thinking of that <laughs> yeah. with Belvira. Sure, it's her favorite game. <laughs> right. And then, of course, that scene ends with Taiki trying to catch Belvira and Garu Garu in a butterfly net. What? Because this is a Mothra movie. <laughs> so, we need to have, so we need to have a butterfly net. <laughs> Yeah. It's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're smashing everything up, literally breaking the leg off of a piano, smashing <laughs> through the glass, but she can't break through or shoot through the butterfly net. Yeah. Or a shoe. Go figure. <laughs> or a shoe. <laughs> or a shoe. <laughs> uh, if the power levels are in tandem with the needs of the plot. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yep. <laughs> That's what it is. She's only as yep, powerful yep. as the plot demands. <laughs> uh, Although you mentioned this before, you said you would love to dress as the Elias. I, mm-hmm. Especially when we get to their singing scenes. I was like, they look like J-pop stars. <laughs> oh, yeah. They kind of look like J-pop stars. 
and their singing sequences like feel hands. like music videos. They do like the little hand gestures and yep, absolutely. Yeah, which is funny because, and you'll understand because you've watched the original Mothra, the singing sequences in the original Mothra feel like they were meant for a musical. In fact, I joked on KVR that I have this feeling, and I think I've said this on this show as well, that I have this feeling that Ashira Honda secretly wanted to direct a musical. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> and the original Mothra points feels like a musical. These feel like music videos. Yeah. Well, there's three of them. They sing three times, right? Yeah. I think about three times. Yeah. And the first so one, especially when they do the classic Mothra song. Right. From right. the original the film. Symbol. Yeah. Yeah. That felt like a music video with the fire Which- and that they, in the background that the actresses are clearly being superimposed upon. And Yeah. <laughs> They weren't singing in Japanese, were they? No, I that was Japanese. First... That was in, that was that Japanese. Was in, Japanese. There was, in this movie, it was Japanese. No in the subtitles. original film, it was Melee. Okay. Because they didn't add subtitles. So I don't know what they... I mean, other than... I know. Saying I don't understand. I don't because the, the version that we were watching, this is the most easily accessible version I have in the vault, is the Sony Blu-ray. And mm-hmm. when Sony released Godzilla Mothra The Battle for Earth, the previous film that Mothra had been in, they did subtitle the songs for that one. But they didn't in okay. this one. And I don't understand why. It's like, you had a perfectly good translation. Why didn't you yeah. just recycle it? Oh, well. Weirdos. <sighs> <sighs> but now let's get to the actual star of this movie, Mothra. And Mothra. her, li- and her oh. little baby. Who, by the way, okay. they don't say it in this movie, but his name, his... They got the pronouns wrong in the subtitles because the Sony Blu-ray, unfortunately, has dub titles. <laughs> so the dub yeah. got it wrong because it's a Hong Kong dub. And okay. Hong Kong dubs do what Hong Kong dubs do, which is not get things, things right. Up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've messed up some animes, too, I've, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the baby, the baby Mothra that becomes yeah. the new star of the movie at the end. His name is Mothra Leo, and he is actually male. Okay. Those are our actual stars. Like I said, this was a reused prop, but this has to be the brightest, most cuddly version of Mothra ever. (laughs) That is a joke people have made about the Heisei version of Mothra. It's super fuzzy and super cuddly. Aw, I love it. I want to go for a ride. (laughs) So who do you prefer? Do you prefer Mama Mothra or do you like Mothra Leo? I think Mama Mothra was prettier. Mothra Leo, I liked the color scheme, but I think Mama Mothra just looked prettier. I just liked how she looked. Yes. She didn't have the weird three-beam thing on her forehead. (laughs) I don't know know what that was. I don't know. I think she was prettier. Okay, let's get into this. This was actually another reason I wanted to have you on for this trilogy because both of the Mothras in this get into shonen anime levels of ridiculous superpowers. Yeah. And let me tell you, this is only a taste of what is to come. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) There is even more. Uh, This trilogy is infamous for this. Okay. And it just keeps getting cranked up more and more as it goes. Well, like I said, I was not expecting laser beams out of different places of the moth that I didn't know laser beams could come from. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's a bit of a progression because okay. in the previous Godzilla film that she was in, Mothra had beams in it. She could fire beams from her antennae 
And okay. her little glittery powder, which was a thing in Mothra versus Godzilla from 1964. She okay. could, she gave off a powder in that, but it was a last ditch attack that she would have. Okay. And it was poisonous and it could paralyze Godzilla. Gotcha. Then okay. in the first 90s movie, it doesn't paralyze Godzilla. It reflects his atomic ray back at him. Okay. So those were really, other than flying and being able to fly in a circle and make her glyph, <laughs> that was really the only superpowers that Mothra had in that movie. And in this one, they just gave her more. They gave so her now a lot more. she's firing beams from her antennae and yeah. she can apparently make lightning bolts from her wings. And <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, that's so, the extent that I can remember because Mothra Leo had even more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's my impressions as a first timer for this. So you told me go watch the original Mothra kind of to get some context. And I did. And, you know, that Mothra was destroying things because of the wind generated from her wings. Yes. So going into this one and seeing the lasers and lightning, I kind of just took it in stride because I'm like, oh, I didn't know much about Mothra. I watched the original one. Obviously, they're going to update it. So I don't know what happened in between 1963 or whatever it was to now. Oh, 1961. But hey, 1961. 1961. 1961. Be glad I caught it now. and not Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, laser beams, sure. I just kind of like accepted it. And then when Baby Mothra came on the scene, that was when I'm like, now why is this thing shooting beams out of its just body as it stands up? Yeah, <laughs> apparently it has a laser cannon on its chest. Yeah. Yeah. That I did not see coming the first time I saw it. Uh, I'm like, okay, the webbing I'll go with. And apparently the webbing has special properties, which it didn't webbing before. Okay. Apparently the webbing can now electrocute things. I'll yeah, go with yeah. it. And it looks kind of rainbowy. I'll yep. go with it. Glittery Wait, and rainbowy. Yeah, yeah, glittery and rainbowy. Yeah, we'll go with it. Wait, laser beam from your <laughs> yeah. chest? What the heck? What? How? You're a larva. Okay. I think this Why is do a you have a laser to... cannon? <laughs> Speaking of baby Mothra, let me tell you about the the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that Jimmy had a little bit of time to go hang out in his garage after yeah. we got started. Yeah. The, yeah, this was one of the oddest broadcasts that I've done on the island because yeah. you fell asleep <laughs> the first time we tried to watch this. It was this. no fault of the movie, okay? It was no fault of the movie. I understand. Just... <laughs> I understand. You, it was you, one you... of those perfect situations where I was just sleepy enough and comfortable enough. <laughs> yes. I make sure to put very comfortable furniture in my screening room, yeah. perhaps too comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you had had a long trip, my... so... And it might have had something to do with Hotua's healing powder, too. I really don't know. But yeah. anyways, I did fall asleep and probably around, I don't know, it might have been during the battle of the twins in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was that long. But upon waking from my short nap, because I didn't sleep through the whole movie, I did wake up. Yeah, it's a good thing um, you didn't. I yelled at Jimmy for falling asleep during the three treasures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So upon waking up, the first thing I see is Baby Mothra. And I'm going to tell you that having never seen Baby Mothra, it's quite a disturbing sight to see because all the images that you see of Mothra are of her being a moth, beautiful, fuzzy in this new version, beautiful colors. But to see, especially upon waking up from a nap, 
baby Mothra, all slimy and with little teeny tiny eyes. And uh, it was just, yeah. it was quite an experience. <laughs> Apparently an experience. during that nap, you had forgotten about the original movie. Which is like, oh, what? yeah. I'm like, oh, wait, what? Oh, what? The ugly thing. Oh, this oh, thing. The, oh, this thing. Yeah, this the thing. turd right. worm. That's right. Yeah. The turd this worm. Is here, too. Okay. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that it's there. I have heard people in the fandom call it a turd worm. And let's. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely it's in keeping with the actual animal kingdom because caterpillars are kind of ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before they metamorphose. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the crazy thing so, is the crazy thing is Mothra's Leo's all his powers. I have a uh-huh. theory about this. Okay. I've been on this island long enough and I'm nerdy enough to come up with these things. Trust me. I spin many a yarn in Jimmy's ear in the after hours and I'm surprised he doesn't go on Twitter and just to uh, rant and mm-hmm. rave about that. I mean, we've already got some conspiracy theories already on this <laughs> show. So might as well have some other ones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now you're going to do it? Sure. Thanks. <laughs> You've gotten in enough Twitter wars with me, man. But anyway, moving on. I think, at least in this universe, <laughs> in uh-huh. these films, Mothra is like Legacy in the popular card game Sentinels of the Multiverse. Are you familiar with Sentinels of the Multiverse? I have not, but I've heard of it. Okay. It's a superhero card game but all the characters are original. Although you can tell what archetypes that they're using. So they have a character in this game who is like your Superman and your Captain America. But he has Superman levels of superpowers. Well, the crux of it is that every generation in his family, they get one more superpower. So the reason why Legacy has so many superpowers is because there have been multiple generations and each one got a new superpower. Mm. So I think that's what happened here. Mothra, in this universe, each generation of Mothra gets more superpowers. Okay. That is the only thing that makes sense to me. I'll accept it. Might as well. Who's going to say otherwise? (laughs) Yeah. And it actually does kind of make sense with, and I I have a listener to thank for this. Kyoe Toshi, shout out to Kyoe, one of my Japanese listeners. Uh, I was bringing this up on Twitter actually some months ago. I was talking about listening to the commentary for King of the Monsters, the new Godzilla film, from director Michael Dougherty. And he said that he had always seen Mothra's life cycle as being like reincarnation. And, mm-hmm. and I put that out on Twitter. It's like, you know, that actually makes a whole lot of sense now that I think about it. Because in terms of scientific accuracy, Mothra makes no sense. <laughs> All right. And then Kiyoe Toshi piped in and said that it was like reincarnation. In fact, she went so far as to say Mothra is a, my apologies if I say these names wrong, is a Bodhisattva or a Bosatsu, which Mm. is a thing in Buddhism. She says those are, quote, extremely enlightened being who delays going to Nirvana or Nihon to help others on earth, both spiritually and physically. Yeah. And when you okay. think of it like that, it makes a lot more sense. Michael Dougherty, when he talked about his version of Mothra, even said that in his mind, every generation of Mothra inherits the memories from the previous ones. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if this movie necessarily went that far, but it does make sense, especially in the Japanese context, for sure. And yeah. like I said, in my head, they all get new superpowers, which is why it just gets crazy. Yeah. <laughs> as you go Which is why you get here. lightning and lasers. <laughs> yes, lightning and lasers. 
If you get nothing else out of this episode, listeners, lightning and lasers. Lightning and lasers. Yes. <laughs> so we had all this going on. And we'll get to Death Ghidorah or Death Ghidorah. Death Ghidorah. Death Ghidorah. Yes. We'll get to him in a second here. But I mentioned earlier that probably the most, that not probably, the most emotional scene in this movie uh... is Mama Mothra and Mothra Leo. Because what happens is the sisters, I wanted to say twins, but, you know, it's sisters. The sisters summon Mothra to fight Descadora. Mm -hmm. Because the whole point of the movie is the dad finds a seal where Descadora had been sealed away by the Elias's ancestors many, many years ago, centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And and this made Jimmy very happy because he's a sucker for these. Descadora is a space monster. So Mm -hmm. came from outer space. They sealed it away. (laughs) The dad found the seal and the medallion that you had mentioned earlier was the actual seal. So he took it away. Seal is loose. Belvira is trying to get it because if she gets it, that will allow her to command Descadora. So that's the MacGuffin that we have in this film. So Descadora gets loose. Nothing anybody can do about it. So the sisters summon Mothra. Mothra tries to fight it. Mothra, despite her lightning and lasers, can't beat Descadora. And then the baby, because Mothra just laid her egg. So apparently Mama Mothra and Baby Mothra, Mothra Leo, have such a connection that even before the thing has hatched, it knows that Mama's in trouble. Yeah. So apparently Mothra Leo is a little bit of a preemie because <laughs> because the the sister is saying, he's already hatching. He's too small. Too young. He's too young. So he gets out and he swims <laughs> however far <laughs> to, to get to land and tries to help Mama beat Descadora. It goes about how you would expect. I am surprised Descador didn't rip the poor worm in half at one point. And my gosh, does he bleed. Wow. Yeah. That was actually pretty intense. And that was was when I was like, wow, that's okay. We're getting some blood here. Yeah. Some wormy blood. That was a thing, actually, in the Heisei movies. They upped the gore (laughs) a bit. Okay. So Mothra is able to free her child and I believe they incapacitate Descadora a little bit. Then I see an image that I never thought I would see. Mama Mothra goes over and grabs her baby and flies away. Aww. And it's cute. It's touching. And you think, okay, they're going to get away. But at this point, Mama Mothra was already weak. She had already gotten beat up once. She got a second win thanks to our kids because they figured out in a very interesting scene, they figure out how to, through prayer, I might add. So I'm assuming (laughs) this is something we'll get into later because I know how you are in your show. And it would make (laughs) Reverend Mufune happy to talk about it. But it's still not enough. So then Mothra crashes in the ocean. And then the baby swims over and he keeps nuzzling his mom's like, come on, mom, get up, get up. The sisters are, you know, are even saying, oh, come on, fly, fly. And he's like, come on, mom, get up, get up, get up. And she can't do it. She keeps trying and she can't do it. And they're playing the music and <laughs> you know, which was, the score, the, like, the, the score in this movie like, is fantastic. I, I got to yeah. say better than I remembered it being. Oh, yeah. It was like Lion King all over again. Oh, <laughs> it was. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it was. It's Kaiju Lion King. That's going to make my sister happy. That's her favorite Disney movie. He's like, come on, mom, do it, do it. And then she can't do it, she can't do it. And then they have this one last little moment. We have no idea what they're actually saying. All of this is done with puppets. These are props. And I am telling you, for a good couple of minutes, I am forgetting that these are props. Yeah. 
I was in it. I was in that scene. And like you said, the music was just the right strings, the right chords were being hit. Oh, man. And then they, when she's sinking oh. and like it's getting darker and her colors are fading, oh. it's just, oh, my goodness. It was actually really great. It was a great scene. Yeah. I mean, that scene, at least this time, was trying really, really hard to compete with King Kong 2005 for me in terms mm. of how impacted I was emotionally. Now, it didn't get there, but it's a good second place finisher. I didn't yeah. I didn't have to hug you like I did Danny. Uh-huh. <laughs> we watched it. <laughs> but I was just like, my gosh, they did it. The scene really stands out because the rest of the movie is a, you know, it's a tiny bit melodramatic and it's a little silly, but for like five minutes, suddenly yeah. it decided to be very serious and try well, very hard to make you cry. I don't want to say that the music would make or break this movie, but if that scene had any other music like the cheesy electronic keyboard music or something it just would have destroyed the whole thing yeah like there was just something about the music in that scene that just really made it come alive and honestly it's something that was to be expected anyway a frequent motif (laughs) with mothra Mm. she dies a lot (laughs) this cycle of death and rebirth is very much a part of her character Not so much in the original film, but definitely when she starts popping up in Godzilla movies. Okay. (laughs) It starts to become a little bit more prominent. So this was definitely in keeping with what they had done before. Hmm. Now let's talk about Mothra Leo. When he metamorphoses. You already said you don't like him as much as his mama, but (laughs) you're going to have to get used to him because he's the star of this trilogy. He's the one. He's the real star. He's the real star. He metamorphoses. And I just want to say, as usual, every time they have a Mothra cocoon, it looks like a giant white peanut to me. (laughs) (laughs) Peanut? (laughs) Seriously, it looks like a giant white peanut. (laughs) Oh, yes, it does. That's hilarious. (laughs) And uh, here's here's an interesting thing, though. The way they do the metamorphosis is different. Yeah. Assuming you've recovered from your nap. You will remember from the original film that in that one, Mothra went to the Tokyo Tower and cocooned herself there. In this one, she goes to... It's actually a real island. I looked it up. Yakushima. We'll get into it a bit more in the next segment, but there is some interesting significance to why they did that. I mean, for one thing, the movie takes place in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost Mm -hmm. island of Japan, and it was the home... You'll remember this from one of my previous episodes. It was home to the Ainu. Oh, right. The Mm -hmm. native people of Japan. Yeah. And it had, for the longest time, some of the most unspoiled areas of the entire country. So then Mothrila goes to Yakushima and cocoons there. And they mention in the movie that there are very ancient trees there. And that's why Mothrilio is able to change. Because Mothrilio is very, like all the Mothras, is very in touch with nature. And the life force of the earth and all of that. And it was those old trees that he was able to use to propel his metamorphosis. That is a real thing. There are actual old trees on Yakushima. So cool. And what's also interesting is that the tree that he uses is a cedar. And there, again, next segment, but there is significance in the Shinto religion with cedar trees. So Ooh. it's very appropriate that that was what he used. So what did you think of the metamorphosis? <laughs> because. 
I mean, this is this metamorphosis is super nineties. It is super kitty. Yeah, yeah. Because in the original it's movie, just, Mothra just pops out of the cocoon, breaks like out, an actual yeah. moth. Yeah. In this, this one, one is very magical. Yeah. <laughs> in this one, for one thing, the metamorphosis happens in about five minutes. Yeah. Must have been the, must have been the song. Maybe that right, was right. There you it go. Was powered they by the music. Up, they sped it up. Yeah. yeah. Or the the trees, maybe. Yeah. But there's a lot of unexplained things in this movie. Well, what, this movie what loves thro- this movie loves throwing fantasy things out and then not really explaining them, but kind of making yeah. it up as they go. It's almost like a little kid wrote the script. You know? Well, it was funny because when Baby Mothra was leaving, they're like, "Well, where's he going?" And the sisters say, "Oh, it's a secret." But then they broadcast on the television that he's going to <laughs> Yukushima Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's a like, secret. Well, not but a secret anymore. <laughs> it's, it's a secret, but the news helicopters will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. uh, Apparently yeah. Japan has brilliant journalists. <laughs> yeah, sure. Although at this point, I mean, they're, they're used to kaiju showing up every other Tuesday. so. <laughs> and, and it's kind of hard to miss the big yeah. worm turd. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a little hole in the cocoon and out pop little CGI little butterflies, butterflies, I guess. Moths, little moths. They're all little colors. And they fly out and then they coalesce into Mothra Leo. And I'm thinking, what am I watching? Uh, Jimmy, what did you put in the popcorn? I'm just... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really? Mothra webbing? That's what's in the stuff? (laughs) Wow. No wonder Dallas loved the popcorn. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Hopefully I wasn't tripping on something. (laughs) But yeah, it was weird. Yeah. And then it just gets wackier from there. Yeah. <laughs> because, and this is something you're going to have to get used to, because then Mothra Leo just goes back and goes into anime power-up time, as Deadpool Seriously. would say, and makes Descadora look like a chump. <laughs> well, it's funny, because I haven't watched a lot of Godzilla kaiju movies. They would air on Saturday afternoons or whatever, but I never sat through and watched them, watched them all. So again, coming from a very new viewer to this genre, I'm just like, oh, I didn't know there was so much lasers <laughs> I guess, shooting up out of the ground coming at Desgidora. I think it's it pretty cool, I guess. You know, yeah. It's all right. It's just that <laughs> he just walks in and, no, oh, that walks in, he flies in and yeah. just pones him. Yeah. He pones him. And from what I can remember from watching these movies again, that is more or less the pattern that they follow. Yeah. (laughs) Mothra or Mothra Leo gets his butt kicked, goes off, finds a power up, comes back, makes the. Goes off, finds a power up. Yeah. In true anime fashion. And then comes back and makes the villain look like a chump. So. It's like when you're playing a uh, Final Fantasy or something, and you get to a boss, you can't beat it. So you're like, "What? All right, go back to my previous save. I need to go, <laughs> go grind for a little, little while." <laughs> yeah. And then come back. Oh, I, I did. I just one shot you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
So I don't know what to think about it, which is weird because I felt like the middle of this movie felt like a climax. It really did Mm -hmm. with everything just ramping up with the volcano erupting and Descadora coming out. And then the sisters have to summon Mothra and all of these things. And it's this craziness happening. And then it's not the finale. And then the actual finale is, hi, I'm super powerful. I'm going to eat you. Mm, Yeah, that fight definitely was over when it barely even started, for sure. And before, (laughs) the the other battle was, what, a good, like, the the middle 30 minutes of the movie? Yeah. (laughs) And the family is there, and they're trying to elude the kaiju as they're fighting, and they're trying Mm -hmm. to help them fight Mm -hmm. the kaiju. And then, what? (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess the idea is it's supposed to be he got, Mothrilio got his power up, and now he's going to go, back and get revenge for mom and you know so it's supposed to be the satisfying thing where the villain sure. gets his comeuppance but i think i would have preferred a little bit more struggle <laughs> i definitely felt more uh weight to the fight between mothra and Desgadora, you know because he's biting her and throwing her and she's fighting back so it definitely was more exciting with that fight this one, it was definitely, oh, that's Godor's, he's done. Okay. <laughs> it was quick, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of my biggest gripes with this movie, and I know it's just this, the pattern is just going to continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have stuff to look forward to. <laughs> but now let's talk about Descadora. You have at least a tiny bit of experience with King Ghidorah because of the anime trilogy. Although I did Mm -hmm. mention when you had me on the show to talk about that, that that was a very different version of Ghidorah. Right. Have you seen King of the Monsters? Nope. Oh, you have not seen King of the Monsters yet. Okay. I was going to say that Ghidorah was more of a traditional Ghidorah. Okay. But this is yeah, not... pictures. Okay. This is not <laughs> King Ghidorah. It is a different right. Ghidorah. So this is Death Ghidorah or Death Ghidorah, depending on the translation. This one is interesting because this is a quadruped Ghidorah, which actually I would say makes a little bit more anatomical sense and makes this Ghidorah less awkward. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a three-headed dragon and you're worried about anatomy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this one has three heads and four legs. What do you right. think is more important? And two wings. <laughs> and two wings. Although the wings came later. That was kind of funny. When he first comes yes. out of the volcano, they look really stubby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think the sisters were saying, oh my gosh, if he fixes the wings, we're really screwed. Yeah. yeah. And then the kids are like, oh, he can fly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then oh, later yeah. on, he does. And my goodness. Yeah. He looks cool when he's flying. He does. He looks positively that, demonic when he shot, gets the wings. Yeah, there's a brief shot when Mothra Leo flies over him. So there's like this aerial shot. He looks really cool. Yes, I will say he's probably one of the best implemented monsters in the whole movie. I got to uh-huh. say, I was, again, I haven't watched these quite as much over the years, but I forgot how well done he was. Kawakito really outdid himself with Hmm. Descadora. The way he was shot, the way that the suit and the puppets, the puppet heads and everything were implemented was just fantastic. Although I'm a little confused about why he breathes both fire and shoots death rays. Why not? But Chuck and everything else. We got a worm turd that shoots a laser out of his belly, so So, why not? We'll just we'll just go (laughs) along with it. Yeah. 
but, kids movie. Yeah, but and I think the they intentionally went with this for one thing, just like with King Ghidorah, hearkening back just a few episodes for me, episode thirteen, the three treasures. All of these Ghidorahs are definitely callbacks to the Orochi from Japanese mythology, mm-hmm. the eight-headed dragon. Sure. And yeah. I think the fact that Descador breathes fire is definitely a callback to that. And actually, just a few years before this, Toho had made a movie called Orochi, the Eight-Headed Dragon. Mm. So Kawakita had a little bit of experience, <laughs> shall we sure. say, doing this. Multi-headed, fire-breathing dragons. Well, I just have a question. What's that? Did they have to make a new suit every time they had an action scene? Because, man, there's a lot of, like, explosions and movements, and I just don't know how those suits look so good after every action scene. Like, did they have to have 20 of them on standby? Well, that one ripped and tore up. We need to get a new one. Let's get that (laughs) new one in here. Uh, I'm not 100% sure with this movie. That might be something for you to look up, Jimmy. But I definitely know that in the past they would have multiple versions or they would okay. repair the one that, that they had gotcha. know, if it was damaged okay. or if, you know, they would need multiple ones for different shots or if, if, you know, in case one of them was damaged and, you know, they didn't want to have to take the time to fix it. Okay. Yeah. And he's vicious. My gosh, he is so just vicious in this movie. And I think the way he was designed was, I mentioned before that especially once he gets the wings, he looks positively demonic. I think that was done on purpose. So you had this very definite contrast between him and Mothra. Absolutely, yeah. Where Mothra is this beautiful, natural, motherly, kind creature. And Mm -hmm. Descadora is an unstoppable force of malevolent destruction. Mm-hmm. They don't come out and say it, but you definitely get the impression all he wants to do is destroy everything he sees. Yep. That is his sole motivation. Very much in keeping with King Ghidorah back in the 60s. Goes from planet to planet and just destroys it. It's what he does. <laughs> yeah. There is no sympathy to be had with Descadora. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. So, yeah, fantastic creature. Which is why I said it just adds to the irony of the fact that he seems unstoppable for that middle part of that movie. And even before then, the characters are terrified of him. They're like, we don't want to let him out. It's bad. We sealed him away. That is a... Okay. (laughs) I'm going to get on a little bit of a writerly soapbox here. What is it with fantasy stories where all they do is seal the ancient evil away? You know... Because it invariably leads to it getting out later. I, I have something to say about that towards uh, when we get into the next segment. So, okay. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm just saying it happens a lot. I've read enough. Yeah. I've read and seen enough fantasy stories to know. It's, yeah. It's a good trope to use, especially with something yeah. like this. So I'm not sure what else there is to say. Descador is a great monster implemented. Well, yep. love how it's shot. Yep. Cinematography is great. Honestly, better cinematography in this than in pretty much all of the 90s Godzilla movies, I'm going to say. Mm, wow. I think that's in large part because of the, they had a different director on this one because the cinematography in the Godzilla films at the, of this era looked very workmanlike, almost like TV movies. Definitely a step okay. down. This one felt much better, much well, better overall. E- even that first shot of the title screen, the image of Mothra on her egg in uh-huh. the sanctuary, when I first saw that, I thought that was a painting and then Monster starts moving. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's something that they created and it looks beautiful. <laughs> yes. 
So, yes. yeah, I agree. The cinematography was really, really well done in this movie. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, tokusatsu as an art form is something that I feel like not enough people, particularly in the West, really appreciate. Mm. They've seen things like it, you know, man in suits and miniatures and things like that, but mm-hmm. it's still kind of looked down upon. And I don't think they realize the amount of craftsmanship that's involved with this. Hmm. Yeah, it has its quirks, like every other art form. Sure. <laughs> I mean, come on. Glitter. Glitter. <laughs> Glitter. And lots of it. Yeah. But there's artistry to this. And if you can shoot it right, you have the right cinematographer, you can make all of it look good. Now, yeah. I don't think this is the best examples of this, especially from this era. It's definitely a step up, I think, compared to what Toho was doing before this. So there was a line in this movie that wasn't necessarily meant to be funny, but (laughs) because I grew up in church culture in the 90s, (laughs) Uh it was funny to me. And maybe you'll remember this, Bex, but there was a line. I try to remember if it was one of the sisters or if it was one of the kids. I think it was Taiki. I want to say it was Taiki. Okay. And he says something along the lines of, what would Mothra do? Oh, and my first thought went to the oh, the uh, WWJD the, was WWJD those bracelets and I think they were at least bracelets. Uh, uh, they were popular for a hot minute with yeah. in the '90s youth groups. Well, you still <laughs> the, see it sometimes pop up on Facebook or whatever. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know, <laughs> WWJD stood for What Would Jesus Do? So, <laughs> so it was a very cute little thing to get the youth group kids thinking about how to live out their faith and all of that at the time. Yeah. You know, what would yeah. Jesus do? I'm in a pickle. What would Jesus do? You know, that yeah. sort of a thing. So I thought someone needs to make WWMD. <laughs> what would Mothra do? I want that what bracelet. Because <laughs> <laughs> the silly thing is they would sell. I'm sure they, they would, would sell, sell, especially with Reverend sell. Mafune and you know all the other Christian kaiju fans. <laughs> fans out there they would eat it up uh, yep, yep. <laughs> what would mothra do <laughs> hey and That's hey great. Eiji Tsuburaya was catholic <laughs> the huh? guy who did the special effects for a lot of toho's classic tokusatsu films from hmm. the 50s and 60s why do you think a little bit of a tangent here why do you think yep. the glyph for mothra looks like a cross yep. in the original yep. film and what do they do use in the original movie to calm Mothra down? They ring church bells because it has because yep. it has a steeple with a cross yeah. that looks. And the characters see the steeple and it's like that looks like Mothra's glyph. And they, yeah. so they make all of these connections. And as I mentioned before, we brought up the Buddhist connections, but Mothra is all about death and rebirth. Yep. And Mothra is famous for often dying. <laughs> <laughs> to save people, save other monsters. Yeah. So there's a lot of connections that can be made there. So what would Mothra do makes total sense. <laughs> what would Mothra do? <laughs> Apparently in this movie, what would Mothra do? Shoot lasers and Shoot lightning. Shoot lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot lasers and lightning. <laughs> oh, we both said it at the same time. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so stop sharing my brain. <laughs> right. Jimmy spends enough time in it as, as it is. Oh, man. (laughs) But that's great. Now we get to the end. This was definitely a thing with the Heisei era of Toho's kaiju films. The Godzilla films in the 90s did this all the time. They did their moralizing at the end of the movie. Okay. And usually the lessons were kind of on the nose. Some of them were a little odd. 
like the lesson apparently of Godzilla versus Space Godzilla is don't throw junk into space. <laughs> yeah, that was the lesson of the movie. This one, as I mentioned before, is common with Mothra stories. Is about environmentalism. It's about nature. Okay. And nature. yeah, and there's an exchange between the mom and the dad. And at this point, dad got hurt so bad during the adventure that he went to the hospital and is now in a wheelchair. Now, I don't know if well, it's permanent, but he's in the wheelchair. I, I thought about that because I was like, why is he in the wheelchair? I didn't see him fall. I didn't see him break anything. When he was rescuing the children, his shoes caught on fire. So if he was suffering from like third degree burns on his feet, it would make sense for him to be in a wheelchair instead of walking. So mm-hmm, there you go. I agree with Jimmy. You get the no prize for the episode. Yay. <laughs> so anyway, the mom and the dad have a little exchange. The dad says nature spent thousands, maybe even millions of years creating all of the natural vista. And uh-huh. then in minutes, because of a mistake he made, breaking the seal and taking the medallion away, he let Descadora out and Descadora devastated everything. Right. And that made me actually think of a line from everyone's favorite Vulcan, Mr. Spock, oh. from Star Trek II, when they were talking about the Genesis device, which if you fired it onto a barren planet would terraform it into a lush world. But if there was anything living on that planet, it would destroy it. And Spock made the remark that it is always easier to destroy than it is to create. Mm. It's true in this. I mean, let's be honest. You know, someone can labor upon something for a long, long time to make a wonderful work of art or even something more down to earth. Let's say, you know, writing up a report or something like that with lots and lots of data. Mm-hmm could labor upon it for hours, years even. But someone could easily go onto a computer and in a few keystrokes, it's gone. It's gone forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if they sculpt something, they build a model. Someone could just walk over, push it over, well, and it's gone. Well, look at the, what happened, what, last year, 2019? The Cathedral of Notre Dame? Oh, yeah. Because back then, it took a long time to build things. And then in, what, less than a day, the fire took yeah. it out completely. Yeah. Oh. Something to think about, I would say. Yep. And then the movie undermined itself. (laughs) This ending is problematic. (laughs) Oh. This this is, oh my gosh. (laughs) Because the parents are talking about this, and then Mothra Leo comes in and pulls a deuce ex Mothraka, as I like to say. There you go. Through his magic pixie dust just flies over the entire forest that had been devastated and fixes it. (laughs) It's all green and okay again. And this is presented with such whimsy. Yeah, this is presented (laughs) with such whimsy. And even though the parents had even been saying, maybe this is a lesson we need to learn. To pass on to our grandchildren. To pass on to our grandchildren, (laughs) to treat the environment better than we are, and to take care of these things. To Uh take care of the forests. I mean, you run Redeemed Otaku. The, as you put it, (laughs) a podcast that examines anime from a Christian worldview. You know Uh that Genesis says that mankind was appointed as the steward of God's creation. So this works into that. It's like, we need to be better stewards of what we're given. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, no. (laughs) Mothra can fix it. Yeah, Mothra fix it. (laughs) 
What would Mothra do? Yeah, Mothra will fix it. Yeah, fix everything. <laughs> oh, my. Oh. It is uh, one of the awesome. few times I can think of where a movie undermines its own message. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. This, I was, what? I, no. I, I was like, oh, that was simple. <laughs> Since, my gosh, uh, this is this is equivalent to, I don't know, parents telling their children when they step on their toys, they have to clean up their room so they don't have to step on the toys anymore to try to teach them a lesson. And then the parents just clean uh, the room for them. Yeah. After they lecture them about cleaning up the room, then they just do it for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, yep. They're not going to learn anything. No. Nope. <laughs> just, what are you doing? I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> did they? Great. Did the filmmakers not have the faith that the kids are going to see this or going to get anything out of, out of it? Or did they think it would be too sad of an ending or something? I don't know. I don't you know. know I, I just, I don't understand. Clearly these filmmakers have not seen Pixar movies uh. because if this, I was thinking this as recently, I just saw Onward. The newest Mm. Pixar film. If this was a Pixar movie, they wouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) They wouldn't. uh, They wouldn't have had Mothra fix it. It would have ended with them saying, "Okay, we saved the world, but man, do we have a lesson we need to learn?" Right. Instead, we get an ending that might even be too saccharine for Disney. That, that is my biggest problem with this movie. I think that is the biggest problem this movie has. For it all of its other flaws, clearing. for as silly yeah. as it is at points, yeah. it didn't stick the landing. Yeah. I mean, it was cool that the kids got to ride on Mothra. I mean, that's always cool, you know, ride on Valcor. That, that, that's my dream, <laughs> you know? Actually, <laughs> this movie is kind of like the never-ending story in some yeah. ways, isn't it? Not, yeah. Now I get it. That's why it yeah. feels like an 80s fantasy film. It's the never-ending yeah. story. Everything's fixed at the end. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny that it was just like, oh, he just flies around, and that's it. Everybody's good now. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Yeah, except it's, I think it's unintentionally funny. It, yeah. Uh, but that leads us into our next segment. So, all right. Let's head into that. So, we mentioned the, shall we say, heavy handed environmental messaging in this movie? <laughs> yeah. That's about right. Yeah. And how it kind of undermines itself. Actually, more than kind of. But as I mentioned before, (laughs) environmentalism and the natural world have always been closely tied to Mothra. Mm -hmm. And it makes total sense. In particular with this film, and I just want to give a shout out right now to Kiyoe Toshi, one of my Japanese listeners. I have you to thank a little bit for this because I actually contacted her and I said, what do you think would be good ideas for topics that I could talk about with this Mothra trilogy? And she sent me several and recommended a book that I read for this called Japan's Green Monsters that had a chapter on essentially Mothra in the 90s. So this trilogy and the Godzilla vs. Mothra film from 1992 going into all of the environmental themes that are in all of these films. Thank you again, (laughs) Kiyoe. So for this one, we will be talking about deforestation, which I know on the surface doesn't sound like it would be terribly exciting, but this movie is all about deforestation. I mean, it's... No, really? Yeah. <laughs> Never would have thought. I didn't get that from the very beginning. Yeah. It, I mean, I was about to say, the movie opens with 
bulldozers. Oh, well, other than Mothra. I mean, Mothra is in the, the title sequence. Right, right, but right. But then the very first shots of the movie are bulldozers going through, knocking down trees. And the yeah. dad in this is in charge of a logging operation. He's cutting the trees down to use for lumber. Mm-hmm. They make that pretty plain. I mean, the only movie I can think of that was even more forthright about its environmental messaging is probably Fern Gully at this point. <laughs> I mean, that is the environmental movie. Right. Well, even in talking about Mothra, when he does come home, like the next morning or whatever, and he mentions the newspaper and look at all this newspaper and this paper that we don't even need. And they mention how it's unnecessary for them to use that much paper. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into this as we go. As usual, I over-prepare for the podcast, hence why I have Jimmy writing his blogs. Also, contracts. (laughs) Not on paper. Yes, not on paper. All electronic. (laughs) Yes. We have trees on Monster Island, but, you know, we're not going to deal with the kaiju to try to cut them down and turn them into paper. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Especially since Kong has a penchant for weaponizing them. (laughs) There have been incidents. (laughs) Just ask poor Godzilla. He ate one. King Kong versus Godzilla. Vex, give it a watch. All right. (laughs) There are thematic connections, actually, between the deforestation and all of the family drama that we've been seeing here, which we'll get into it as we go. But the family drama is meant to parallel the environmental themes that are going on with this, particularly with the deforestation. But I found out doing my research that deforestation is actually not a new problem for Japan. This has been going on for 300 years, believe it or not. There was one website I found, I got this little quotation here from it, that said, As long ago as 600 to 850 AD, construction booms in Nara and Hayan, my apologies if I am saying that wrong, along with demands of the ruling elite for timber to supply armies and build castles and religious monuments, had caused serious deforestation in the Kenai region. Forest use was exploitative. Timber and other forest products were taken without regard to replenishing the supply. And they would also use this stuff for irrigation, for fuel wood, charcoal. Heck, they even used leaf litter and grass as fertilizer. Hmm. Now, this was fine for a while while Japan's population was small. It would cause some local deforestation, but then they would just move on to another area to do logging. And then you get to around 1570. By then, Japan's population had increased to about 10 million people. And so the villagers' needs had increased along with that. And so they had to increase the supply of these things correspondingly. There was military conflicts in the 1500s, so they would need timber for the armies. And then you had the Tokugawa shogunate. I'm sure that's a term you're familiar with, Bex, the the Tokugawa shogunate, especially if you watch any of the, the period piece animes. Oh, yeah. Like, you told me before we went on the air that you're watching Rurouni Kenshin right now. Yep, I'm and, watching through Rurouni Kenshin. Yeah, yep. and that is actually, even though it's a shonen anime, it's actually, it's based on a lot of history, because that is taking place right after the Meiji Revolution, Meiji Restoration, when the Tokugawa yep. Shogunate came to an end. Yep, but, so you know, having it, to deal with all the change. Yeah. Yep. Because uh, just to let everybody know, that was a period in Japan's history where the emperor and the royal family were still around, but the real seat of power were the shoguns. They ruled the country. 
And then in the mid-1800s, there was what was called the Meiji Restoration, where the emperor reestablished himself as the ruler of Japan. And the samurai were pretty much eliminated at that point. Mm -hmm. the, they ceased within a couple of decades of that. Like if you've seen the movie The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, that also takes place around the same era as dealing with a lot of the, the same things. So the demands for lumber went up in the 1600s, which brought in a lot of conflict between the villagers and the rulers, as you would expect, because the rulers would want the supplies all to themselves and wouldn't leave a whole lot for the villagers. So you had competing interests going on there. And then by 1670, yeah. Japan's population mm -hmm. had increased to 30 million. And with the exception of Hokkaido, the old growth forests had been completely logged at that point. So everything is running out because of all this increased demand. I see here that you have a note regarding something from the book. The emperor was seen as a patriarchal head of the Japanese family. Japanese family in quotes. This Confucian idea believes that a stable family led to a stable government. So since we're talking about kind of the shift from the shogunate rule to the emperor, the connections between family and nature kind of echo these nationalistic ideas. Yes, they do. The, that was one of the most interesting things that I got out of that book. I thought it was a fascinating idea as well, mm -hmm. where oh, the yeah. Japanese family, the, the nuclear Japanese family, is seen as this microcosm of this mm -hmm. very traditional Japanese idea of the nation as a family and the emperor as the patriarch, the father, right. so to speak. Right. And that trickles it down to the rest of Japanese culture. And you see it in this. I believe the argument that they were giving was that the old traditional Japanese values were being restored in the family that we're following in this film, just as there was restoration going on between humanity's relationship with nature. Mm -hmm. Those were yep. the parallels that were being drawn. So those authors of the book were connecting the nuclear family, the environmentalism to with the Japan's, stable government. Yeah, with the stable government and tying it back to... Japanese national identity, Japanese national yeah. spirit, I guess you could say. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of jargon in this little excerpt right here, more than I remember when I did my research. But essentially what it's saying is that in 1670, there was a, it's called a positive tip. It was a turning point in how the Japanese practiced their logging. They started making some cultural changes to better manage it, essentially. And that came about through something that was called silviculture, which I had never heard about before. I saw that note and I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm wondering if it was a mistype, but then it was typed in there a couple other times. Yeah, so. uh, this was uh, something that I found. I wrote it out exactly. But huh. uh, it was a way to better manage the tree populations. There were scholars that wrote about this. They wrote manuals for it. And they even had, okay. this was what it actually said in the article. They said there were silviculture missionaries. <laughs> who traveled around the country talking about this new technology going from village to village. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. That is know. interesting. Combine that with some new social institutions. It was uh, changing how they conducted things. And there's a lot of details in here that go along with that. I will leave those for Jimmy. Was that an improvement for the land management or just improvement on how to get more out of their logging industry? Do you, well, does that question make sense? Yes. Well, there's a know? little, uh, maybe this little sentence here will help to uh, put that into okay. perspective. It says, the creation of managed tree populations stimulated new social institutions for the ruling elite and the villagers to cooperate on timber production in a way that provided villagers incentives to produce timber. 
Okay. So it was a way to better manage all of these things. Okay. As one article put it, this virtuous cycle, that sounds very Confucian. <laughs> mm-hmm. I should mm-hmm. know, I've talked to a few people here on the island uh, amongst my coworkers about Confucianism a little bit. This virtuous cycle of reforestation, a cultural change, continued until the 1920s. And then okay. the war happened. <laughs> I was going to say, then something big happened. <laughs> yeah, then the war happened. And so there was, as you would expect, a huge increase in demand for timber and lumber during the war in order to fuel Japan's war efforts. Hmm. Much of Japan's forests were cut down to power all of these efforts. And then afterward, during the occupation and then the following years when they were reconstructing, you may remember, you know, I've talked about that in a couple episodes of Kaiju Vision, you know, the, the occupation mm-hmm. and everything. It's a fascinating portion of Japan's history. There was a huge demand for timber and pulp lumber to help with rebuilding. And then, this is interesting, there is a forestry agency in Japan launched a massive campaign to clear-cut, this was something interesting, the Buna forest. That is a species of tree, Buna. Mm. Buna forests and replant them with faster growing trees as part of their reforestation efforts. Hmm. But there was a problem with all of these efforts, well-meaning though they were from what I've been able to gather. They focused on everything other than biodiversity. Mm. That's where they started getting into a little bit of trouble. Villagers were recruited to plant millions of trees in, quote, an effort to both rebuild the country's woodstocks for future development and protect villages from landslides and rain runoff, end quote. But instead of planting broadleaf trees like Japanese beech, only two tree species, the fast-growing evergreens called the hinoki. Have you, uh, let me know if you've ever heard any of these, Bex. The hinoki. Okay. Have you ever heard of the hinoki? Nope. It's essentially a Japanese cypress. Okay. They also planted sugi. You ever heard sugi? Mm-mm. Yeah, that's Japanese cedar from what I've been able to gather. Those were the two tree species they were planting as part of their reforestation efforts. Quotation I have here, in some areas, native forests were cut down and replaced by more lucrative plantation forests, like we've been talking about with these two species of tree. of the country's total forest cover was converted to these one or two species forests. 44%. And much of this was done from the 1950s to the 1970s. I know I'm just throwing a lot of numbers out at people, but if you are into ecology, this is pretty significant. So basically what they did was just slap a Band-Aid over it. More or less. (laughs) Because these, as you'll find out as I keep going through these notes, there were some issues with them planting just these one or two species of trees. Sure. While this was all going on, there was what was called, this is, I thought this was interesting, what was called the Buna Massacre. This was a term coined by the Japanese lumber industry. Artificial forests that once accounted for only 27% of Japan's total forest land grew to cover 44% by 1985. Hmm. An estimated 17 million Buna trees were cut down. And just to put that into perspective, worldwide, only 3.5% of all forest land is artificially planted forests. Worldwide, it's 3.5, you said? World, Yeah, worldwide, it's 3.5%. In Japan alone, it's 44 by 1985. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. Wow. Talk about a problem. <laughs> now, these areas need thinning. But there uh-huh. isn't enough people to do the work. Ironically. Why? What? <laughs> yeah. Ironically. 
because Buna wood rots quickly and warps easily after being mm. processed. I just thought this was funny. The kanji that's used for its name literally means useless tree. Oh, no. <laughs> so all the trees they were planting, they can't use. No, the ones that got torn down and replaced. Oh, okay. okay. Got, the ones that got cut down and replaced. What am I talking about? Torn down. <laughs> These aren't buildings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. So the ones that they took down. Yeah. They also. The worthless. Yeah. They also replaced them not only with the two species I mentioned before. They also used conifer. So conifer forests were densely planted and then periodically thinned to ensure the trees grow straight and tall. The lower branches had to be pruned for not free high quality timber. Hmm. So they knew they had a problem. Mm-hmm. They tried to do a couple different things. Mm-hmm. None of them seem to really help. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then what got compounded is not only was there increased demand, but around this time period, 50s, 60s, 70s, from what I was reading, uh -huh. Japan was like they were doing with many things. They were switching to imports instead of producing uh -huh. their own. Mm -hmm. So they switched to imported wood, fossil fuel, chemical fertilizers for agriculture to eliminate the demand for forest products from what was called the Satoyama Secondary Forest and to greatly reduce the demand on the sugi and hinoki that had been planted. While this was going on, prices for domestic lumber soared. So companies went to the imports because they were cheaper. Right. This is nuts to think about this. In 1950, Japan's self-sufficiency with lumber was 90%. Now it's less than 20. Oh, wow. You want to know what one of the downsides to moving to imports and planting all these evergreen trees was? Yes. The unharvested trees caused a huge increase in pollen and hay fever. Oh, no. <laughs> so because of that, in the spring, the economy would lose $2 billion U.S. dollars from lost worker productivity because of sick days with hay fever. Wow. Whoops. Huh. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Anyway, in the 1960s, <laughs> this was nuts. Remember how I said that Japan was resorting to importing their lumber? Mm -hmm. They weren't just causing deforestation in their own country. They were causing it in other countries. Yeah. In the 1960s, the mountain forests of the Philippines were the first ones to be used for these imports. And then after those ran out, Japan then turned to Indonesia and then the Malaysian states of Sabah and Sarawak. I hope I'm saying that right. And then Papua New Guinea. That's interesting because I now have friends hmm. in Papua New Guinea working with Wycliffe Bible translators. So they're hmm. missionaries. Here's a quotation for you. So destructive was the Japanese approach to logging that Japan was internationally criticized for depleting the forests of Southeast Asia. Wow. Yeah. That's Interesting. crazy. Huh. It's freaky to think about. They were eating yeah. up other people's resources. Descadora. Yeah, Descadora. Yeah, we'll get to that. Huh. <laughs> but now I found one article that talked about a village called uh, Nishiawakura. They were an example of a lot of modern villages in municipalities, townships. That's not quite what you would call them in Japan. It's more like what Americans would call them. Okay. And they are implementing new plans to help combat this. In fact, Nishiwakura actually has a 100-year plan that looks at the lessons of the past. There's another line I got from an article. The lessons of the past 50 years and plans for the next 50 years with sustainability at its core. After they implemented this, they saw an eight-fold increase, actually, in their forest-related income. So it's working. Mm -hmm. 
And going back to the Sugi and Hinoki trees, one of the things that doesn't help with having such a narrow biodiversity with these two species of trees is there are forestry laws in Japan that require that if any get cut down, they have to be replanted. Hmm. So some are saying that they don't incentivize biodiversity. Another quotation here for you from a guy named Hiroyuki, not the guy from Gundam. <laughs> okay. That cracked me up when I first saw it. I'm like, wait, what? Hiroyuki? Gundam Wing? What? No, it's not Gundam Wing. <laughs> uh, he's talking about how the native forests have had a huge impact on the local wildlife as well, as you would expect. Okay. Quote, yeah. it has deprived them of their natural habitat while the saplings and bark of the replanted conifers provide fodder for deer and Japanese ciros. Not sure what those are. That's something for you to look up, Jimmy whose populations have burgeoned as a result. Another effect has been to drive black bears down into areas with human populations in their search for food to replace the acorns that are no longer to be found in the reforested mountains. Hmm. So now people have to deal with bears <laughs> coming to see them when they normally wouldn't. There's a freaky thought for you. I yeah, think really. stuff like that has happened in the United States as well, from what I understand, move, animals having to move around because of changes to the environment and they end up sure. in populated areas. Yeah. Ironically, while Japan has richer forest resources, because a lot of efforts have been made to reforest the areas, its lumber industry is actually in decline. In 1980, it was worth 1.158 trillion yen, but by 2014, it was only worth $450 billion. Hmm. So we're talking, we won't go from trillions to billions. I know those are still giant numbers to everybody, but that is a significant decline. Oh, yeah. And this is pertinent because, like I said, we saw loggers. We saw the logging industry in this movie. Yep. And they were, they had uh, protesters? Were they, yeah, there they were protesters. protesters? I'm at, you're, at, yeah. you're jumping ahead of me a little bit because there was an increase in protests when it came to deforestation, particularly, it started ramping up a lot in the 70s. So we'll get to that uh -huh. in a little bit. But not only that, but forestry workers also dwindled. And at one point they had 146,000 at the peak of their production. And now it's dwindled to a third of its former level. Hmm. Although I think part of that is because, as you probably are aware, Bex, the Japanese population is aging and is dwindling right now, which yes. is a very unfortunate yeah. thing about Japan. Yeah. I think their birth rate is 1.4. Yeah. It's incredibly low. And it should be like 2 point something Yeah, in order for the population to sustain itself. Yeah. They're heading into some deep, deep trouble. Yeah. They most certainly are. And then because of the dwindling labor force, there's a lot of forest land that's left unattended. And so it just keeps growing. And mm -hmm. that causes flooding and landslides, especially after a typhoon or a heavy rainfall. And those have been increasing because of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and humorously, Japanese cedar. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Prices for Japanese cedar are only one-fourth of what they were in 1980. And now it's jokingly called the world's cheapest lumber. Hmm. I've mentioned several times during this episode that this film takes place in Hokkaido. So this little quotation here I found says, it's worth noting that, quote, open pastures were cultivated in the Hokkaido region of northern Japan in an effort to attract more people to the area for agricultural development. Over 45,000 households immigrated to the Hokkaido region, but only 28.6% stayed. Oh, wow. 
Most of the cultivated pasture land was abandoned and returned to the Japanese government from 1966 to 1977 as climate conditions in the area were not conducive to good crop yield. The shift from old growth forest to pasture left large areas of reduced soil fertility that trees were unable to recolonize. Oh, man. Due to the lack of seed bank and competition with dwarf bamboo, human involvement was necessary to reforest the area. And yet in this movie, we see people cutting down the trees. Or we just need Mothra to come through and yeah, reforest it for okay, us. Yeah, pull a Dusex Mothra cut <laughs> and fix everything. Yeah. From 17, oh, excuse me. From 1978 to 2005, native trees with high growth rates were planted in plantations. It was mostly conifers that were planted in the area, but it has aided in the recovery of a conifer broadleaf mixed forest. I got all of that from Wikipedia. That's crazy about the only uh, 28% of the people stayed there. Yeah. Which I, get, which I don't think the family that we follow in the movie, I don't think they're in Hokkaido because they had to take an airplane yeah, to they go had to, to Hokkaido. They had to fly. Yeah. But dad works in Hokkaido. Right. You mentioned earlier that there were protests because there were protesters in the movie. Right. And there was a movement against deforestation, and it's grown over the years. It, it started to really come together in the 70s. And this is noteworthy because one of the first instances where that happened has connections to our movie. Ooh. Yakushima, the island where Mothra Leo goes to do his ridiculous metamorphosis. The the secret place? Yes, that isn't so secret. (laughs) And suddenly I have the the song going through my head in the secret, in the quiet place. (laughs) You can metamorphose into tiny butterflies. (laughs) From a peanut. From a yeah, from a giant white peanut. <laughs> when before you were a, an ugly turd worm. <laughs> so the movement against deforestation. Their connections to Yakushima are kind of interesting. There is a rare species of tree that grows on Yakushima because Yakushima is way out in the ocean, several hundred miles mm-hmm. from the mainland. I think I even read someplace that it's called the Japanese Galapagos Islands. There's a lot of unique fauna and wildlife there, including a species of tree that's called a cryptomeria, or in Japan, it's called a yakusugi. And there are forests of this tree species on Yakushima that are said to be a thousand years old. Now, compared to, as I looked up a list, compared to the list of oldest trees in the world, that doesn't really register anywhere close to the top 10. But still, a thousand years old. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. Here's the problem. These trees have been logged since the Edo period in the 1600s and used as building materials because they're high in resin and immune to rot. And they were also, from what I read, they were also sent as tribute back to the mainland. Now, interestingly, I didn't find a year for this in the article I was looking at, but it did mention that there had been a ban on logging these trees for a while, but it was lifted in 1957 because, as I mentioned before, the increase in demand for lumber. So whole areas got cut down. Then in 1966, and this is relevant given what we see in the movie, they exaggerate the age, but that giant cedar tree... That Mothra Leo uses. I think the fairies were saying that it was supposed to be, what, 10,000 years old, something like that. I think so, yeah. Yeah, It's a bit exaggerated. By that, I mean like two and a half fold. But (laughs) (laughs) 
But in 1966, there was a gigantic Yakusugi tree that was thought to be 4,000 years old. That is cool. And it was later named, and again, I may be saying this wrong, but Jomonsugi, after the Jomon period of Japanese prehistory, which was 10,000 years ago. Hmm. 10,000 to 400 BC, to be exact. So they found this, and it became a tourist trap. It was a mainstay of the tourist industry in Yakushima. People came to see it, as you would expect. So then the Society to Protect Yakushima was formed in 1972 in response to a lot of this. There was a landslide caused by deforestation in 1979, and then a year later, the Society protested plans to build a gas storage facility on the island. That same year, and this is pertinent, quote, what remained of the Yakushima natural forest land was declared a world network of biosphere reserve as part of UNESCO's Man and the Biosphere Program. And in 1992, the forest agency designated the whole area as a forest ecosystem reserve. And then, most importantly, in 1993, Yakushima and the Shirakami Sanchi became Japan's first natural world heritage sites. So we're talking, this was just three years before the movie came out. Yeah, very, very significant. Yeah. The last logging of Yakusugi was in 2001. So it was all over within a decade after it got declared a natural world heritage site. So there is some tremendous significance with Mothra Leo going to Yakushima. Oh, yeah. It was a World Heritage Site, and you had the very old trees. And as we've been talking about, you know, there's deep connections to the environment and to the natural world with Mothra. Because the whole thing with the movie was they were saying was Descadora was feeding off of the Earth's life force. And it was sucking the life out of the natural world. And that's why he was killing the forests. And the idea was that Mothra Leo was going there because these old trees were full of this energy that he could use for his metamorphosis, Mm -hmm. which is very much in keeping with Japanese religious thought. Now, here's something that's interesting for you. The cabinet office in Japan in 2014, they conducted a survey to see what the Japanese people's interest was in nature. It was 89.1% who said that they were extremely or somewhat interested in the natural environment. So it's That's pretty good. There's incre- <laughs> there's a lot of interest, there's increased interest, and I think it shows just how deep that runs. Mm-hmm. Which leads us into this wonderful little book, Japan's Green Monsters by Sean Rhodes and Brooke McCorkle. They had a chapter that talked about this. Okay. Connecting all of these things, like I mentioned before, to the Japanese national spirit, national identity. And it's pertinent because this movie was made and released in 1996. This was in the middle of what was commonly called the Lost Decade. Because what had happened was for several decades after World War II, it really kicked into high gear in the late 50s, early 60s. Japan's economy grew by leaps and bounds every year. Well, almost every year. They were getting to the point where they as a nation really thought they were unstoppable. And then the asset bubble burst around 1989, 1990. And at that point, Japan's environmental concerns shifted from nuclear to conservation. And there was also a nostalgic turn back, we hinted at this a little earlier, to pre-industrial Japan when people were more connected to nature and rural life. 
Japan had long connected its national identity to nature with things like Mount Fuji and cherry blossoms, you know, the good old Sakura. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And to the ocean as well, because they're an island nation. So there's already deep connections to begin with. So we had mentioned this before, but the disharmony of nature is paralleled in this film with the disharmony within the family. Oh, for sure. And by the end of the film, harmony is restored in both the family and in nature. Yep. Like you mentioned before with the emperor, a balanced family is equated to a balanced relationship between nature and humanity. Yeah. The very first scene is kind of the family fighting and arguing. And then at the end of the movie, they're together and caring for each other. Just Mm -hmm. as they had also learned that humanity has to live in harmony with nature. Yep. Which is interesting. Uh, The authors of this book point out that it's interesting that you have this nostalgia for very traditional Japanese values, some of which might be seen as out of date, juxtaposed against very progressive ideas of environmentalism, Hmm. and the two are connected. So where does Des Ghidorah fit in with all of this? Well, like I said, he feeds off of Earth's energy. He drains the forests. He is deforestation. Yeah. Like I said before, these movies were very obvious with their symbolism. It starts (laughs) off with us seeing trees being cut down, and then what happens later? It's almost like a Bambi scene. All the small animals and the deer and the chipmunks are running away, and you're like, oh, no, don't shoot the squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) Or in this case, eat them. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're a kaiju, and that's what you do. You eat the things. Yep, yep. (laughs) So Descadora represents all of this. He is deforestation run amok. Yeah. In a way, it's saying that Descadora is humanity if we don't keep this in check. This unstoppable force of destruction against the natural world. Because he's not even part of the Earth ecosystem. It's just a line when we're getting an exposition dump. But they said Descadora, as Jimmy reminded us, Descadora is from space. He's an alien. He's not supposed to be here. So the family uniting against him shows how the national family of Japan can defeat Mm -hmm. environmental degradation. Until the Dusex Mothrica. (laughs) I'm going to keep bringing that up. I can't let that go. No. I just can't. You shouldn't. I can't. Oh. And what's interesting is we get some visual symbolism to go along with this as well. And I noticed this. We didn't talk about it when we were doing the film discussion, but there's a fantastic shot of the larva silhouetted against the setting sun. Oh, sure. Yeah. This is iconography that's connected with Japan because Japan is what? Land of the rising sun. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So there's that connection. And I've seen this has been done in a Godzilla film as well. So again, it's saying Japan must return to traditional values that it abandoned during the bubble years. Mm. Because some would argue that the bubble years when their economy was just growing exponentially was a time of greed and everyone forgetting those Mm. old traditional values. And Mm. doing things like mowing down forests to, you know, make lumber and taking trees from other countries then too and deforesting them. They're consuming, Hmm. constantly, constantly consuming. We had talked about before about how the dad ends up in a wheelchair from his injuries. And the authors of this book argued that the dad being in the wheelchair represented the scars left by deforestation, especially since he was the one who was spearheading it. Right. Which I thought was interesting. I honestly don't know if the filmmakers intended anything like that. (laughs) 
this could be a lot of reading into stuff because really on the surface this just comes across as a you know it's a simple children's film mm-hmm. but there is a lot that could be stretch. from it yeah i don't think that's a stretch to say that that's what they intended I had a couple different things to pull from the movie that I know the director and the producers, I know they didn't intend this. So I'm not saying that I'm completely reading all this into it. Okay. (laughs) So that's your listeners. know. (laughs) I'm not accusing the directors of, or uh, claiming that their attention was anything that I'm going to say here. But what I do. We say that a lot on this show. Trust me. Okay. Good. Um, I have heard zanier theories about some of the movies I've looked at. Trust me. All right. Well, that's good. What I do is I look at the underlying philosophy that drives, you know, the story and the plot. So I have a couple observations that I kind of go through here. There seems to be a dualistic theme going on. I think we mentioned it earlier, but mm-hmm. Desgadora representing the wholesale destruction of the environment versus Mothra's making use of nature, but not destroying it. Mm-hmm. The seal of Elias can be used for good or evil. Mm-hmm. And this was only mentioned that one time by the sisters. It's implied that Desgadora is evil. Very and evil. Desgadora, yeah. And just like you mentioned earlier, Desgadora doesn't get destroyed, but it's only sealed away. <laughs> Which I still like, find to be a bit odd because of how yeah. much Why do you do Mothra Leo owned him. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, can't kill this thing? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, again, another implication that we can draw from that is that evil is always present, but it is through the choices and actions of individuals to decide whether that evil surfaces or not. So, there isn't, in the world of Mothra, <laughs> there's no real end to the threat of Desgadora and Belvira, and it could all happen all over again if we allow it. Which, again, goes back to how this movie undermines its own (laughs) message. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So coming at it from a Christian perspective, there's no objective moral standard for good in this movie. Only that which is interpreted by the director through the story and the characters is decided whether it's good or evil. This is evidenced in the twins letting Belvira go. You know, she was doing some pretty evil things. (laughs) But they just let her go. And the only explanation is because she's our Ah, sister sister. and we love her. She's a troublemaker, but we love her. Like, if by troublemaking you mean nearly killing Killing. God only knows how many people. Yeah, exactly. So there's no real retribution for her actions. Only a, just like you said, Belvira, only just kind of different viewpoints, I guess you could say. Belvira wants to destroy the humans and the twins want to protect them. Eh. (laughs) You know, they're not really good. It's just different. It's just different. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, from a certain point of view. Yes. <laughs> also, at the end, when they are standing there surveying the destruction caused by Desgadora on the environment, the parents say, look at what we've done. <laughs> you know? So it's just like kind of the different viewpoints. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just depending on how you look at it, whether it's good or bad. So let me just kind of wrap it up here because I watch through the lens of the Christian worldview. Um, I have to bring it back. Excellent. (laughs) I have to bring it back to the Bible. We know God exists and he is the one who declares evil from good. He is the source of morality. God created man and placed him on the earth to tend and to keep it. 
Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, that's our role on this earth is to subdue the earth and to rule it in God's stead. Or, um, that's not right. Um, Heresy! We're feeding you to the giant spiders. <laughs> <laughs> to tend it as his representative. That's the word I'm looking for. As his representative. <laughs> But because of Adam's disobedience, God cursed the earth and sin entered into the world. Um, And even though that mandate still stands for us to tend and keep the earth, we must now deal with the curse and the results of sin. So as evidenced through the mismanagement and the destructiveness of mankind towards nature, that's the result of sin. And of course, nature fighting back in a sense. That's also a part of the curse. But the story doesn't end there. We just celebrated Easter not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, redemption has been purchased for all those who turn from their sin and trust in Him. And the Bible is explicit in stating that not only is there redemption for mankind, but the whole creation will be redeemed as well. And here's the good news. Well, here's part of the good news. Evil will be punished. Sin will be put to death. Death itself will die and a new earth will come. Resurrection will happen and it will be a final resurrection. It won't be this cycle of rebirth and death and rebirth and death. Like and with even Mothra. though the exactly, exactly. And even though the director wasn't coming from a Christian worldview, I've already said that very clearly, the hope of all things being made new can only come through the message of the gospel. There you have it. <laughs> Which now that I think about it, maybe that lends a little legitimacy to the ending, you know, the the renewal of creation. There you go. Maybe it's uh, supposed to be an echo of that. I still think it undermines its message. No, I agree. I I absolutely agree. Maybe I'm, that's I'm what they maybe it. that's what they thought they were doing. Yeah, there you go. I'm maybe. I'm coming at it from a different viewpoint, so yeah. I see it. Uh, although I, I, can, I twist, can tell you, I right, can twist it in a way. Yeah, although I can. Uh, Tell you right now, this is not New Narnia where that was earned. Right. There's another right another literary reference for you. You can check there that you off of your Monster Island Film Vault bingo. I think right we've, there. we've got quite a few now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or as Ben Avery says on his podcast, Strangers and Aliens, saying, Oh, these are weak connections. Weak can definitely be a term <laughs> to use. <laughs> All right, Bex, since I love working in little elements of my fellow podcaster shows into the episode that they guest star on. It must be asked, does this get the redeemed otaku masterpiece seal of approval? I enjoyed it, but I can definitely see where some people wouldn't. Um, I think, like I said earlier, if you are a fan of Japanese media or of kaiju movies and films in general, I think there is some enjoyment to be had. It does have its flaws, and some of them are glaring, but (laughs) I liked it. I liked it a lot. I'm glad you're so we'll here. That. That. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> it feels like a little bit of a wild card. <laughs> yeah. When I bring in people who are less familiar with the genre. That's one of the things I love doing on the show is introducing the joys of tokusatsu and kaiju to people. There's a lot of charm behind it, and I like stuff like that. Well, I can tell you, I have met the Shobajin, and they are charming little girls, let me tell you. Mm. They came to visit us for Christmas, actually. 
Excellent. they have to stop by and see Mothra, you know, because she hangs out here now. And oh, Mothra yeah. Leo is here too, and he's busy doing his thing, which will involve a lot of anime style transformations, as you will see. <laughs> Excellent. I can't wait. Future Nate injecting himself here after getting some much needed rest. I forgot to mention something else. This is what happens when you do a midnight run of a podcast broadcast. What I wanted to bring up is that as of this episode, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes, I am most likely going to start a Patreon for the show. I know with how things are right now with the coronavirus, a lot of my fellow podcasters are suspending their Patreons, and I totally get it. Things are tough right now, especially financially, because a lot of people are out of work. But I've been wanting to start this Patreon for a while, so I'm going to put it up there. And whoever is able, please support the show. If you can't right now, there's no pressure. If you want to support the show in the future, do it when you can. But I will be offering at least three different levels of Patreon membership with perks for each one. Keep your eyes out for it. And I hope you'll be able to support the show at least on some level. Thank you. And now, back to the conversation with Bex. But speaking of future episodes, our next episode will be a mini-analysis of the 1961 tokusatsu classic, although it has not been seen in the United States nearly as much as it probably should, The Last War, which is a very, very different movie from Rebirth of Mothra (laughs) in about every sense of the word. It's not a kaiju film. It is a Cold War drama, I guess you could say, that has to deal with a hypothetical World War III. Mm, okay. Should be uplifting, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the star of that movie was a Japanese comedian. Oh. And you actually saw the guy. It's uh, Frankie Sakai. He was in Mothra. He was the reporter. Oh, oh okay. And then next month, you're coming back. Like Yay! we've already said. For part two of three in this yep. little trilogy, Rebirth of Mothra 2. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you. Will there be Belvira? Oh, Will yes. Will she have a new little dragon nope. writer thing? Nope. Oh. For what I remember, it's still Garu Garu. Okay. Well, I remember correctly. Garu Garu. But, well, let's just say the next one will be interesting. <laughs> okay. That's I'm all excited. I'm going to say right now. It's interesting. Let me put okay. it to you this way. Most of the fan base uh-huh. talk about part one, and they talk about part three. Okay. Part two is the redheaded stepchild then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the from middle what child? I can remember. Yes, it's the, the middle, middle child. child. It'll be perfect for you. This is the middle <laughs> child of the trilogy. It is the oddball. Oh, man. I can't wait to hear your reaction to this one, Vex. I really can't. All right. Well, I'll, I think the rose-covered glasses will be coming off. So oh. now that I've got two Mothra movies under my belt. So, yeah. Okay. That's a good idea, Jimmy. He says that you sound a little tired right now, but he, he wanted to know before you fly back to the States oh. in your uh, mech suit, would you like to meet Mothra? Wow. Would I? And I would love to ride Mothra. I don't know if I can make the ride happen. Oh, and even to see Mothra, we're going to have to ask you to, you know, spend about five minutes washing your hands. Maybe take a shower. We don't want coronavirus going to the yeah. kaiju. We don't know what coronavirus right. does to kaiju. I'll get right on that. Yeah. And yeah. I'll make sure to reapply some Hotuo healing powder as well. Oh, yeah. That'll come in handy. <laughs> Maybe just do that instead of the shower. I think okay. that'll be fine. Yeah, I think you'll be okay. okay. Also, I think the scientists will want a sample of the of the powder. They want to study it. Yeah. 
There's plenty yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah. You might want to take a nap first, though. I, I think a nap is definitely forthcoming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you once again, Bex, for joining me here on Monster Island. Do you have any last words for us? I certainly do. Thank you so much for having me on. And to your listeners, remember to redeem your love for kaiju by turning back to the truth found only in God's word. Jimmy's telling me that uh, Reverend Mifune is very happy with you right now. Yay. I'll have to meet him too. I got a little text message here from Jimmy. He says that uh, Reverend Mifune is now arguing that this is the best episode we have ever had. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love you, it. You have set a high bar. <laughs> All right. All righty. And with that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>